the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Here's the reality. Emergencies usually strike without warning. We're surprised when the stock market crashes or power goes out. Certainly, with earthquakes, there's no warning. These things happen. And when it's breaking news, it's too late to prepare. Now you're scrambling and panicked best thing to do is prepare for natural disasters or emergency situations while things are still calm. So ask yourself right now, could you feed yourself or your family for two weeks with the food you have at home at this moment? If not, it's time to act and secure an emergency food supply. I use my Patriot Supply. And you should, too. A two-week food kit will get you started. This week, it's on sale for only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-411-7290. These food kits include meals that last up to 25 years in storage. So order now and prepare yourself so there are no surprises. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Forget about it. If you can't remember the phone number, 888-441-7290, and you can't remember preparewithsouthernsense.com, you know the name of the show. It's Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com, and click on 
My Patriot Supply. So check it out. Good afternoon and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair, erudite, and oh-so-intellectual, soon-to-be movie maker, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? <laughs> I am doing just great. I'm getting ready to um, head up to Georgia to rally our patriots up there. Um, as we all know, the 2020 um, presidential election is just around the corner, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, actually, uh, this coming Monday, the 15th of April, is not only tax day, but it marks the 10th anniversary of the Tea Parties. I can't believe I've been doing this for 10 years for the Tea Party. Uh, Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Now, the funny thing is, normally that we would do our our Tea Party rallies here in Beaufort, South Carolina, on the third Monday of each month, we'd have our meetings and do whatever we're going to do, have our guest speakers. But, you know, I forgot that it's also the date that we started the uh, Tea Parties. So I said, it's IRS day. Everyone's going to be worrying about filing their taxes. So let me shift my meeting to the following Monday without even thinking about it. You know, what a dimwit. I should have been born a blonde. Oh, wait a minute. I was. (laughs) Anyway. so we're going to be a, a week late and a dollar short, but we're going to be out there doing our stuff. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to have Turning Point USA as the guest speaker at our next Tea Party meeting. So uh, I apologize, guys. You know, my bad. I just wasn't thinking it through. But that said, we're going to have a friend of ours on the show, a gentleman I met nine years ago when he was one of the guest performers at one of our first Tea Parties here in Buford, uh, Lloyd Marcus. Uh, that is where I met Andrew Shea King, uh, Amy Kramer, and I met a whole mess of really fantastic people, the Ribleys. Um, matter of fact, I think Kay Ribley is still in charge of uh, Tea Party Express. Uh, I think they're doing a new bus tour, so we're going to be talking to Marcus about that also. Uh, he and his adorable wife, Mary. Oh, man, can't believe I've known them now for nine years. Anyway, want to welcome those that are listening in the chat room and up in the studio. And I do see callers in the studio as well as those up on Facebook. Still cannot get the YouTube video up working properly yet, so I normally upload the show later on. Um, want to welcome everyone. If you are listening in, in the studio and you want to participate in the conversation, please remember to press one. Otherwise, my assumption is that you are just enjoying the show as you laze around in the afternoon. Ah, oh, man, we got so much to do today, Curtis. We got ourselves a oh, yeah. full schedule. Holy moly. Uh, we're going to start off with Verona Henke. She's got a new book out called The Last Night on the Titanic, Unthinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. Uh, we also have David Dorson has a, a book that came out this past November titled Moses v. Trump. It's a contemporary novel. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about that as well as things that are going on in today's news and a, always a good friend of mine always a pleasure to have him on I, man I can't believe I've known this guy now holy moly for about six or seven years Dan Perkins uh, we're going to be talking to him about what is going on in the news uh, 
the Chinese woman that got caught over at Mar-a-Lago and a whole mess of other stuff we're going to be talking to him about. And we've got a new guest coming in, and I'm going to have a lot of fun with this guy, Anthony Griffith. Uh, he is a comedian, and he and his wife wrote a new book out that was uh, guest authored by another gentleman, and it's called Behind the Laughter. And what an amazing story. And then we'll close out the show with Lloyd Marcus. Boy, I'm out of breath just talking about this, Curtis. <laughs> well, it sounds like we have some very interesting guests today. I can't wait to hear from them. Yeah, You know, we'll probably be discussing uh, William Barr's testimony before Congress. And, oh, man, did that get my blood boiling the way uh, that he and Mnuchin were being treated by the Democrats the disdain. And <laughs> they have no shame in their game. Brainless. None. The brainless questions I mean, that were being asked. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, you know, the guy, you know, he's bound by the law, and there are certain things he just cannot release, and they know it, but they're just playing to um, their audience, people who aren't, you know, as oh. as informed. So it looks good, you know. As a, a, a highlight clip, but we know, you know, Barr can only release certain things. You know, I, I'm just through with exactly. the title. <laughs> no, and we have, um, we also have AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I'm finally able to pronounce that woman's name. She's like the gift that keeps on giving, and you know, the people in her district are finally realizing they elected a bubblehead. So we're going to be talking about her, and she is now siding with Ilhan Omar and Ilhan Omar's idiotic anti-Semitic statements, and she just can't keep her mouth shut. Uh, we, we have so much <laughs> out there. I mean, we thought we thought Obama and his administration would be you know, food for fodder and for everything that would carry us on for the next eight years. But these two alone, I mean, they're outdoing Maxine Waters. And, oh, let's get into Maxine Waters. Asking all those banking executives uh, what they're doing about the student loan uh, business. Yeah. Uh, duh, Maxine, the government officially took it over as of 2010, and private banking no longer has any control or say over student loans. So get your head out of your. I'm going to start cursing. You in a <laughs> well, I think I but think has, we have a good chance. I, has, I think we have a good chance of winning the house back. So hopefully they're. Rain will be short-lived in the house. Uh, all we have to do is also look at the circus that's out there running for president on the Democratic ticket. You know, each each week we come up with a new shiny little thing in the mirror that they're looking at. And this week it's uh, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, this new guy that was a, a mayor. Um, he's yeah, a shiny object about. everyone's scrambling for. Uh, you know, he's actually out polling Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke is now on the downside. And, oh, boy, he's come up with some genius things, telling uh, the farmers out in Iowa to stop growing their crops, or stop growing the wheat, because it's aiding in global warming. Now, just think about that statement. The they cannot crops. let the global warming go, I tell you. Something wrong with them. It's a mental disorder. But wait, wait, wait. I thought plants took CO2 
out of the atmosphere. And isn't that what these global alarmists want us to do, reduce the CO2 that's in the atmosphere? So stop growing crops because you're contributing to global warming. No. Well, what, what are <laughs> we supposed doing... to eat? What are we going to eat? I mean, we, got... Of... <laughs> we got so much to talk about. So much. But let's get the show on the road. Um, anyone that listens to the show knows that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Sergeant Waitasha Lamar Carter from the uh, Birmingham Police Department in Alabama. His end of watch was Sunday, July 13th of twenty. 19. And this is from the Officer Down Memorial page, as well as from Officer.com. And it starts off, Sergeant Waitasha Carter was shot and killed as he and another officer attempted to arrest two men who were breaking into vehicles at a bar on the 900 block of 5th Avenue North just before 2 a.m. on July 13th of this year. They were in an area in a special detail as a result of recent rash of vehicle break-ins. A plainclothes officer spotted two subjects pulling on car handles of various vehicles and notified Sergeant Carter, who was in uniform and responded to the parking lot. The officer and Sergeant Carter stopped the two subjects and began to pat them down for weapons. One of the men suddenly produced a handgun and shot the officers, fatally wounding Sergeant Carter and critically wounding the plainclothes officers. One of the subjects was wounded by return gunfire before both men were taken into custody. Sergeant Carter was a U.S. Air Force veteran. He had served with the Birmingham Police Department for eight years and had previously served with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office. Leeds Police Department, and Fairfield Police Department for an additional nine years. He survived by his wife and children. A Birmingham police sergeant slain early Sunday, January 13th, died doing his life's work, trying to make the world around him a better place, a safer place. Sergeant Waitasha Carter, affectionately known to his friends and family as Whitey, died with a gunshot wound to the head around 2 a.m., while on a special detail investigating car break-ins in the downtown Birmingham area. Those that knew the 44-year-old husband, father, and U.S. Air Force veteran said he had a passion to serve, and it showed every time he hit the city streets. He wanted to make a difference, said Pell City Police Chief Paul Irwin, who was Carter's captain at Birmingham's West Precinct, the type of person who killed him, that's exactly the type of person he was trying to help. He was the most amazing, most caring husband, father, and officer I have met in my entire life, said Birmingham Police Officer Jordan Campbell, who also worked with Carter at the West Precinct. Every time I found myself getting into a dangerous situation, I'd look up, And there he was always there. He prayed with me. He counseled me. First of all, he was there for me and anyone else that needed him without question, she said. The shooting happened just before 2 a.m. 
outside the Four Seasons Bar and Grill. One suspect was taken into custody, and one suspect was also shot. Birmingham Fire and Rescue Service took all three to UAB Hospital's trauma center, where Carter was pronounced dead. His co-workers later saluted the mortuary transport van that carried the fallen officer's body to the Jefferson County Coroner's Office. More than a half dozen patrol cruisers provided escort for the transport. Carter was a 1993 graduate of Phillips High School and then served in the U.S. Air Force. Once he completed his military service, Carter launched a career in law enforcement in 2002 as a correctional officer with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office. Later that year, he joined the Leeds Police Department and remained there until moving to the Fairfield Police Department in 2007. Tuskegee University Police Chief Patrick Martis Sr., who formerly served as Fairfield Police Chief, said Carter was both a co-worker and a friend. Carter served as a detective, a sergeant, and a member of the special response team while he was at Fairfield. He loved to work with school kids, mentoring them on the dangers of drugs and gangs, Martis said. Carter was a fierce protector of his co-workers. He was always the first one in and the last one out, he said. He made sure his comrades were safe. He was truly a public servant, he said, and his death will leave a profound void in Birmingham area law enforcement. Another former Fairfield police chief, Leon Davis, described Carter as hardworking and dedicated. He was always willing to go the extra mile, Davis said. He was the ultimate profession and public servant. Even more importantly, Davis said, he was a great man and humanitarian. Carter left the Fairfield PD in 2011 to join the Birmingham Police Department, where he worked various assignments, including patrol at the city's West Precinct, Hiccup, and Youth Services as a school resource officer. He was made a member of the precinct's task force because he was such a go-getter, Irwin said. He was all about getting the job done. In 2016, Carter was one of several officers who responded on April 14th to a home in the 1700 block of Avenue West, where a roof and chimney had collapsed, trapping two young children, ages eight and five, beneath the rubble. He and other officers were later honored for the rescue. I went in and was in there moving the debris, Irwin said. He came in behind me, shoved me out of the way. He really cared about people and the community. Carter was promoted to sergeant in February of 2018. Birmingham Police Sergeant Tim Gardner and Carter were promoted at the same time and grew close over the years. He was one of those people who never met a stranger. He graduated from Phillips High School, but as a school resource officer, he worked at Jackson Olin and Woodlawn, and he was 100% about that school when he was there. He took a vested interest in every single kid he dealt with. We talked probably last week about getting back over there to the school resource division. That's what he really wanted to do. He always helped people. He's been in law enforcement a long time and had a lot of knowledge for the new people coming in, Gardner said. Asked about what he would remember most about Carter, he said, for his coworkers, 
It would be how much he loved his law enforcement family and how much he sacrificed for the city. Birmingham Police Chief A.C. Roper said he was saddened by Carter's tragic death. I had the honor of promoting then-Officer Carter to sergeant as one of my final acts as a Birmingham Police Chief. He was a great hire for us and was very deserving of the sergeant's stripes, Roper said. I will always remember him and his can-do attitude. Birmingham has truly lost a guardian of public safety, and White's sacrifice will never be forgotten. We must remember his family with their prayers and support during this great loss. Former Birmingham and Fairfield Police Officer Eric Boper Sr. said Carter was his brother not only by the badge, but through his life's journey. I remember the first time I met him in the hallway of Fairfield Police Department and made it sound and feel like we already knew each other. I looked at Nick Dwyer and said, who is this dude and where do you come from? Nick just laughed and said, he must be your brother. From then on, friendship and brotherhood began. When Burpo was injured in the line of duty in 2006, he said the entire police department Department supported him, but Carter did more, he said. He called and texted to make sure I was straight almost every day. This is how he was. When he came to the Birmingham Police Department, he continued to shine. Any department he went to, they were sure to find out that they had a great man, a great officer in their midst. He helped to mold officers, not only to be great at what they do, but be great in life. His legacy will not be forgotten and will live on through many of us that have worked along beside him. Carter is the 52nd Birmingham police officer killed in the line of duty. The last time an officer was killed was June 17, 2004, when Robert Bennett, Harley Chisholm, and Carlos Owens were gunned down in an ambush outside an Ensley drug house. This is one of the roughest hours of your career, said Birmingham Police Chief Patrick Smith. There's not a chief, not an officer that ever wants to have to deal with this. This is a very, very difficult thing for the family and for the department. Birmingham Police Sergeant Heath Buckle, president of the Fraternal Order of Police, said the department had been hard hit by Carter's death. We are human, too. It's a tragic loss for us, he said. We have a senseless crime in this city, and now it's happened to one of our officers. We are trying to get everyone to come together to solve this crime problem in the city. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Waitasha Lamar Carter. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. Dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we dedicate to them by this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one.
You're here listening to Seven Cents here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all that act with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Curtis, we're waiting for our first guest to call in in just a few minutes. Uh, she wrote an amazing book called The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. It was a fun book to read. It's not the type of typical book that I thought it would be, and we're going to have fun talking to her about it. Uh, and and uh, I think I know Kel loves history, and she's over there in the chat room. So special shout out to everyone in the chat room. Hi there, everyone. Hi, Kel. And to our friends listening here <laughs> in the studio. I uh, <laughs> want to remind people that the, Kel and Tim Tapp in the uh, chat room both have their own amazing shows. And I have to apologize. They're always doing a shout out to me whenever I show up in their chat rooms. And you know what? I'm so damn egotistical person. I always forget. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So check out Kel in Global Patriot Radio and Red Fox Radio, as well as Tim tapping into the truth. Uh, So I apologize for not not always mentioning you. And our special shout out to our friend, uh, Sweet Sue who is still on the mend recovering. She's up in the studio listening in, too. And I got to tell you, she's always out there pumping over the people's show. No matter how bad she feels, she's always out there trying to help someone. So God bless her, the hard work she's doing out there. We do have the show up over also on Facebook. So I want to give a shout-out to the – ah, see, a friend of mine over there already. So hi, Lisa, over on Facebook. Um, I still am having problems getting up onto YouTube, so – We'll try to work that over the next couple of weeks. And, yeah, Curtis is still unable to get into the chat, and hopefully we'll have him up and running. Yeah. He's going to be paying me a little special visit soon, hopefully, and we're going to sit down and look at his computer. And, and troubleshoot this, yeah. And I'll probably, mess it up. <laughs> I'll probably mess it up worse than it already is. <laughs> oh, you know, man. One of, uh, one, the, of the, uh, one of the most... Um, I guess the emotional movies I ever watched was A Night to Remember, um, which was about the Titanic. And there have been others. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the one that came out, you know, not too long ago. Um, but I'm really curious to see um, Veronica spin on uh, the Titanic 
most of them have been pretty pretty sad, except for the most recent one with um, Leonardo um, DiCaprio. Uh, I believe that was more like about romance, but um, of course, at the end, it was sad. So I didn't get a chance to read well, last night with only... Titanic, but. Oh, it looks like our well, guest is here. Well, <laughs> yeah, let's let's bring in on the show. Maybe she can tell me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Veronica Hickey, author of the book, Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. Good afternoon, Veronica. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Oh, this is this was such a fun book. But I gotta tell the publishers that when they send me books like yours, autograph them for me. Because <laughs> I do, I put every single book, every author that I, I interview is up on the bookshelf directly behind me, and I, I say about seventy-five percent of them are autographed. <laughs> but it, it was a fun book to read. It wasn't exactly what I thought it would be, and you take a very interesting way of approaching uh, the subject. Well, thank you. I'm I'm hoping that you and others will be inspired through these people's stories, just like I was in reporting them. Well, you know, um, we are up on the uh, video up on uh, Facebook, so I'm holding the book up over in front of the camera so people can see it and they can see the little post-it notes I have there, which tells them, yes, I read the book cover to cover. And that's one of the things I, I hate when someone does an interview and I haven't read the book. I want to know who I'm talking to and what they wrote about. But you, you brought up a lot of interesting things. Uh, and, you know, I, most people don't realize that Titanic had a sister ship. And a lot of the yes, people right. that worked on the Olympia also went over onto the Titanic. And I found that very interesting uh, because of the captain. Uh, Edward Smith and his actions. Yeah. There was a lot of controversy about what he was and was not doing. And these are all things you address in the book. Yes. Yeah, the research that I found really put Captain Smith in nothing but positive light. Uh, it demonstrated, you know, all the different ways he was a gentleman to the end by all eyewitness accounts that I could find. Uh, people have asked me, you know, was he drinking? And everything that I've seen and read points to that this was a very upwardly standing person, a, a very strong individual, strong in his um, dedication to his life on the sea. He went down with the ship, and there's, you know, no evidence that would point to anything of him acting um, anything but completely professional. In fact, there's at least one eyewitness account that believes they saw him, that it was him that swam a baby out to the lifeboat that he was on. And when this man was a mysterious man that no one could make out in the dark, um, he was offered a seat on the lifeboat and declined it, which is why the person believed it was Captain Smith. And he said, good boys, good boys, good lads. And he went back to go help people. So, um, you know, I, I really came across some very positive signs of what he was like. You know, there's, there's some really amazing stories. And what you do in your book is different from what I've ever seen anyone do. You combine the styles, the dress, uh, the comparing 
what you saw in first class to second class to steerage. You also talked about the drinks and the food. And I got to tell you, I did mark off a couple of these recipes for me to uh, try out. Uh, so, you know, how did you get to get to have all this information about the actual recipes, which you actually put in? You know, how much research did this take you to do, or is this something that was already ready available? No, this was a real um, curative approach that I took, and these recipes are they're one of two approaches. One recipes from um you know that we know of of those items like chicken ella stanley you know and we we uh, found old cookbooks i found old cookbooks like the fanny farmer cookbook and the um you know those historic cookbooks that had those edwardian era uh, menu items in them and then we also have a whole um collection of recipes by modern day chefs and home cooks. And in many instances, they're recipes that are inspired by Titanic menu items and also the ingredients being that it was, you know, the height of spring when the Titanic sailed spring ingredients like spring onions, asparagus, uh, English spring peas. They were ubiquitous aboard the ship rhubarb. So it's become customary for people that want to celebrate that in dinners and other, you know, in parties and dinners and so forth to come up with Titanic inspired menu items like the English spring pea souffle and soup that has a vibrant green color to it and really shouts out spring nicely. And it's become really customary for, for people to, to do that. So you know, not necessarily that these were for sure served on board the ship, but they're modern takes on those same reflections of spring that we see on the Titanic menus. Well, you know, it's funny. Our friend Kel in the chat room has posted a comment, and this is something I, I read throughout your book, because you give individual accounts of what happened to certain people, you know, how they ended up on the on the ship, uh, what they did that last night on where they were, what they were doing when the ship struck the iceberg. And one of the things I found is that how many people that were aboard the ship had the premonition that something was going to happen, that the ship was going to sink. And Kel writes there that her grandfather warned that the Titanic would sink. (laughs) Excuse me. He kept shouting it until finally he was kicked out of the movie theater. But a lot of people had a premonition that this vessel was not going to make it across. Yes, people did. There were many examples of that. Uh, there were, you know, even Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown, as she's become known and beloved in today's modern era. She went and had her um, fortune told, and she even heard, you know, of, of uh, predictions that something was going to happen. And then I think it's really interesting, too. I think it's just beyond irony that this special group of friends from second class, these people who had bonded as, you know, as much as they could in the first few days of the voyage and just getting to know each other, they took it upon themselves to plan an impromptu hymn service on that Sunday night. So just a few hours before the iceberg was hit by the Titanic, this group of a very, um, positive thinking people and you know they were bonded in their christian beliefs they asked the beasley if he would 
try to, you know, get this path through the, the clergymen who were in charge. And sure enough, it, it happened. They made it happen, and they sang songs that were just unbelievable when you look back on what they were about to face within just a few hours. To give you one example of a song, Lead Kindly Light was one of the hymns that, you know, they wanted to sing. And many of those hymns and their lyrics are included in the book as a sign, an example of the uh, music fashion of the day. And also to emphasize how ironic it was that, you know, they were gathered together, this large group of people. It ended up growing beyond the friendship group that started it. And it was just amazing that they were gathered together and, and, you know, praising their Lord together right before they faced what horrific tragedies they faced that night. Uh, it is amazing. You know, and um, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Titanic was actually racing the Olympia, of course, to see who's going to hit uh, New York Harbor first. And the Titanic was ahead. And uh, there was one woman, I forget what her name is, happened to ask, uh, aren't we heading into an ice field, you know, a bunch of icebergs? Are we going to slow down when we hit the field? And I believe it was the engineer said, no, ma'am, we're going to speed up. Now, excuse me, you're going into a whole right. bunch of icebergs, and, and instead of slowing down to make sure that your passengers are safe, you're going to speed up? Right. And I don't know if you got to this section yet, but what I discovered was amazing. Two years ago, we saw headlines breaking, and it appeared at first glance that this was brand news to us, brand new news, that there was a fire on board. However, I found multiple newspapers from 1912 during the inquiries that pointed to um, very clearly that there was a fire raging on board from Southampton where they first boarded passengers and that stokers worked around the clock trying to put out that fire. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. And uh, our friend Sasquatch in the chat room uh, pointed out, and this is something I heard a long time ago, uh, before the Titanic ever came into existence, there was a novel that was published about a boat that travels from England to New York, hits an iceberg, sinks, and it was named the Titan. Have you heard that story? Yes, absolutely. And uh, William Steed, the journalist, and, um, you know, this was an, another amazing, hard to believe even, coincidence. And to think that it was called the Titan. Yeah. You know, as you go through this, the end of, oh, go ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host, Curtis. <laughs> Yeah, I was just wondering if you were inspired by the movie that came out or you wrote your book before the movie. Well, I wasn't necessarily inspired to write the book from the movie, but I love the movie very much. I love both movies, including the one in the 1950s that was based on Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember. I was inspired to write this book because I was really curious um, what was life like? During that time, so much of what happened on that ship, we know of because it was happening in the restaurants and theaters and in the the bars and so forth. 
um, all all around the you know New York and London and other big cities at the time. So I wanted to look at those places like Delmonico's, New York City, which is still there. Um, you know the Savoy Hotel. There are stories about that in the book. Um, Antoine's in New Orleans to look at their menus, see what they were serving. Um, you know, just to give you an example, Mark Twain celebrated his 70th birthday with a dinner at Delmonico's. And Mark Twain was the best man to Francis Millet, who passed away on the Titanic. And uh, Francis Millet is the man who designed the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 in Chicago, which is where I live in the Chicago, the brains behind the concept of the white city. He wanted and all the buildings white. And so that concept came from him. So just amazing historical significance that we see. And when we think of, you know, where do these people celebrate things like their 70th birthday, for instance, and what were they eating and uh, wearing and so forth? It was, it was very telling at what life might've looked like aboard the Titanic. Well, you know, there, there were, you know, people that went down and were getting artifacts off of the floor and from the debris field. And at one point they said, no, you're not going to enter. You're not going to take any artifacts or anything out of inside the vessel. If it's outside, that's fine. But treat this as if it is someone's, it is someone's grave and treat it with respect. So you cannot take anything out. And some of the things that came up at, off the floor, uh, watches, uh, vials of perfume, jewelry, all different types of things that told the story about what was going on. And through your book, you're able to take some of those artifacts and place them with specific individuals. As you mentioned before, Molly Brown, you have a whole chapter dedicated to Molly Brown. And having seen the Debbie Reynolds films multiple times, you know, I never quite equated what you wrote about to the character that was on the screen. To me, they seemed like two different people. Well, and in fact, they are very different people. I was amazed at the difference from the perception of Molly Brown to what her great-granddaughter shared with me about her, the actual facts, um, and not the just the Hollywood look at Molly Brown, but the incredible stories. Like, for instance, you know, I was going to work with a quote that I had heard many times before. Molly said, apparently, you know, is what I had heard. Molly had said, it's not the money that I love. It's the not having it that I hate. And I thought, oh, great quote. And then her granddaughter told me, her great granddaughter said that um, that's not a true quote after all. And that a better quote and something she actually did say, and it was more telling of her true personality was what we included in the book, which was, I'd rather marry a poor man that I love than a rich man that I didn't. And to me, that made sense because I saw Molly again and again in the research that I did, just absolutely selfless, caring for others, encouraging the women in her lifeboat to row to keep warm. Once she was aboard the Carpathia, which rescued the passengers that had escaped into the sea into lifeboats, she wanted to acknowledge Captain Rostron and his crew of Carpathia because they had braved through these iceberg-infested waters to pick them up. And so in what was very much a man's world in those days, she just held her head high and went in there and galvanized this group of prominent men mostly present an award 
to Captain Rostron and his team. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that she was thinking about when she could have very easily been cowering away, feeling sorry for herself aboard the Carpathia, but not Molly Brown. No, she went on the rest of her life doing a lot of uh, Philip, Philip, I can't even pronounce the word, generous things in her life. She gave so much back that people don't realize her generosity and how her influence affected today. Uh, I mean, buffets. I mean, how many people go out to Las Vegas for an all-you-eat buffet? But that was a creation of Molly Brown. Right. And she created many approaches to dining, like the buffet you mentioned, the electric cart that served as the buffet for her in many ways. It kept cold foods cold and hot foods hot, which was a forerunner in her very, you know, which was compared to today was very primitive uh, entertaining resources that she had, but she sure did not let that stop her. (laughs) An amazing, amazing uh, woman. And it's a shame someone doesn't write a book just about her to get the truth out. You know, I think that's something that maybe you could tackle because you do such a very good way of portraying her, you know, her, you Give it the basic of her lifestyle, where she came from, her husband being a gold miner, striking it rich, and then later on them separating. And you never hear about Molly having any other love interest in her life, but she led a very full and vibrant life anyway. She really did. And, you know, another thing that I've learned about her, I always envisioned her as a more robust woman. And she was actually a very slight woman, really, compared to what I had thought and exercised regularly ate healthy and was really um, actually pretty thin for a woman of her day. So I um, I just really learned a lot about her and I got to know her even better. Yeah, you know, one of the most favorite, famous couples that were on this vessel in the first class were the Astors. And you would think that here you got John Astor. He's, he owns all this stuff. He's so wealthy, he's so influential, you would think of anyone you would try to save off that would be him. But he very gently puts his wife on the lifeboat and steps away for someone else to take the seat. He could have he could have bought his way on there. As a matter of fact there was one lifeboat that was called the money boat. Right, and the money boat, I'm real glad to have learned that it was it was it came out a few years ago, just recently, that um, the accusations against the Duff Gordons that they had tried to buy their way um, into the crew not going back to pick up passengers because the big fear was the suction of the ship uh, pulling them down and also more passengers would mean a greater chance for um, tipping over but um, or for all sorts of different things, not just that, but for um, just greater concerns for them. And they had a, a much more comfortable situation at the time. But what came out in letters that were found in the attorney's office recently was that the Duff Gordons had given money to the crew that was rowing them because the crew divulged to them, that, you know, they made them understand and realize that, you know, the Duff Gordons had lost their belongings on the ship but they had lost their jobs, you know, and when the Duff Gordons heard that, they readily gave them the money that they did give them. And it ended up being cursed for them because they were judged wrongly, misjudged by the public. And people 
globbed onto that and really attacked them for what ended up really being a kind thing they were trying to do, and they were scorned in society for the lives. Well, you know that that last night on board the uh, the Titanic, it happened happened to have been Captain Smith's retirement dinner, and you write about this extensively about the food and the people who were there and what they were doing, uh, but. Captain Smith did take a lot of controversy. He wasn't he didn't live to defend himself, but there was a lot of talk about did that retirement dinner have anything to do with someone else being at the helm at the time of the crash? Right, and from everything I could see, the procedures were followed as they should have been from, you know, the way it, it, it read and all the information, all the eyewitness accounts that I read in the British inquiry and other uh, in, in other instances. So, you know, everything that I could see pointed to that he did nothing wrong. No, he didn't. And it's so, so many amazing stories. And what I found ironic is that when it hit the iceberg, you know, everyone has a different description for what they felt or heard or assumed was happening. Some people thought it was propeller. Some thought it was the engine. Uh, Others had no idea what it was. People being tossed out of bed. A lot of people stepped out of the cabin to see what was going on, but were being told by the stewards to step back in the cabin, don't worry about it, everything's okay, only later on to find out they're being called on deck to bring their life vests. There's a lot of confusion in those first few minutes and hours after the iceberg was struck. That's such a good point you bring up. And along that same line, you know, people were reluctant to board the lifeboats at first. And they actually asked people, crew members like Violet Jessup, to board a lifeboat for the women that it was a good thing to do for them to get going and evacuating. And people were reluctant. They thought they were safer on the Titanic at first. When they did start to realize how important it was to get off that ship, then they had to deal with jumping down a couple of levels in some cases into a lifeboat. There were many instances where people were jumped on top of and people fell on top of other people. And there were um, plenty of, of examples where the front of the lifeboat was up higher than the back end and slanted and so forth. So it was very dangerous, even for those people that could get into a lifeboat. And then you hear the stories of the crew actually the um, the cook staff and others that were held back because they were employed not by the White Star Line, but by the Italian entrepreneur Luigi Gatti. In fact, he was hired to, to set up and run a commissionary, um, which would have French food, and they were not considered to be part of the White Star Line staff. And, of course, since they weren't passengers, they were held back from going to get into a lifeboat and that is why one of the evenings, um, one of the after one of the long days of the British inquiry, a headline ran in one of the papers: "Titanic cooks drowned like rats," because this came out in the British inquiry the way they were held back because some of them were able to get through and get into lifeboats. Paul Mulgay was able to do that. He was one of them, and he gave that account of his experience and the tragedy of the people that could not fight for their lives. Veronica, yeah, you it, know, it, from, 
do you know if the White Star Line ever recovered from this this tragedy? I mean, from what I I know about their history, that wasn't the only ship that they had um, some tragedy and, and and sinkings with. Well, a good example of that is when you look at the sister ship of Titanic, the Olympic. She went on to sail for many more years, and that, of course, you know, a White Star Line vessel. Um, and you mentioned also along the lines of the former tragedies and things that happened or the emergencies. Ironically, Captain Smith was the captain on the Olympic when there was a, you know, a similar type of emergency, or there was an emergency, nothing at all like what happened on the Titanic, but there definitely was a when his ship was in peril uh, several months before the Titanic. Um, so it's interesting that you ask about that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that happened aboard the Titanic that had happened on the Olympia. Olympia and I, I found the parallel to that very, very striking. Um, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing book. And like I said, it's not just telling the stories, but actually, you know, people can, as they're reading it, can try some of these um, recipes and check out some of the other stories. And, and you have the hymns in here, everything else. As I said, it's really, really fascinating book. But one of the things that came out of this was at, from that point on, all passenger carrying vessels had to have adequate number of life rafts. And that was one of the downfalls of the Titanic. They were not prepared to evacuate an entire vessel. Right. And what was really amazing is that at the time, the federal regulations that governed that actually allowed for, they they were up to standard based on the federal laws, Um, but it still wasn't enough. And so that law changed as well. You know, there's a lot of things uh, that, that have come out of the sinking of the Titanic that we now use today, things that you don't think about. And what I found amazing is because you, you describe one of the passengers, a wealthy gentleman from England, uh, amazed that when he went into the dining area to eat his meal, he didn't have to pay. You, know, you had an a la carte restaurant, but these all were included in the fare, and that, that was an innovation something that we see in today's cruise ships uh, that they didn't see back then. The actual a la carte restaurants, the different types of restaurants, the different types of fare that was available almost 24-7, these were all something new to these passengers. Yes, that's so great that you bring that up. But you sure did read the book, and I'm so glad. Yeah, that man was Adolfo Salfeld, and as he said, everything was all gratis, and he was so excited. He wrote a letter home to his wife telling about the meal. And he's also the man that had the perfume samples that she mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Now, I got to tell you, the, the reason why I, certain sections popped out to me a little bit more than others is that back in, I'm going to date myself, so I won't even say the year, but I used to own a travel agency uh, before deregulation in computers when you actually went to a travel agency to sit down and have someone consult you. I was one of those. Um, and oh. when I retired with my husband, we owned a printing business. And that was something else I found very interesting because, you know, current cruise ships, they do have, you know, printing on board, but it's all computerized. But I was amazed about the number of presses they had and what they were able to do. 
And I know the type of equipment they would have worked on. Uh, because even to the time we closed our shop, a lot of it was very similar to what these guys were working on in those presses. So I found it very interesting that you got into all these details. You know, how were the menus printed? How did they keep up? The calling cards, the notepads, all this stuff. And this survived because people just didn't even think about it, was shoving this stuff into their pockets. And when they got aboard, you know, the Carpathian or any other rescue ship, it's like, oh, yeah, I had this left over. And in today's auction houses, it's going for big bucks, these, this memorabilia. Yes. Yeah, and it's funny. I, a friend of mine just went to Bali, and as soon as she got back, I said, did you save your menu from the, air, from the flight on the way over? Well, she said no. And I thought it was so funny because I still have my menu from Air France in 1984, my first flight to Paris. And, I, you know, those are the kinds of people that I wrote about in this book the people that save the menus. (laughs) Well, you know, I used to save all that stuff, but, you know, you move from one place to another because my first husband was in the military. And, you know, it just, by the time you keep on packing, it's like, why am I carting this stuff around? But little do you know, maybe 50, 60, 70, 100 years from now, your grandchild may open up a box and say, oh, wow, grandma kept this. Let me go over to Southby's and see how much you can auction off for. And it's big bucks. It, this stuff really <laughs> brings in the money. Right, right. Well, I may still have some old travel posters from the 70s <laughs> somewhere in the house here. So one of these days I'll take them over to an auction house and see what they'll sell for. But it is, it's a fun book to read. And uh, there's so many stories in here. And I was down to the last chapter. I was reading the chapter about the fire and the ice Uh I was all almost completely done with the book before we went on air. And as I said, you know, people can see as I hold it up to the uh, camera, all the little post-it notes. And it, it, to actually step back in time to a time you think of grace and beauty, and you compare it to today's hectic travel and hectic pace of life, you, you sometimes long for what was once. And I guess your book brings that up to a more time of elegance, of courtesy of being simple manners yes ma'am thank you ma'am was not something foul to say yes and chivalry thinking of women and children first I think it's it is a kind of a comforting era to look at and um, a lot of us can use a little bit of that right now and I appreciate you saying that and it is a, a very good book. It's from Regney History Press. Uh, people can find it online. As a matter of fact, there is a link on the show page, Veronica. So when people listen to the podcast later on, uh, as they're looking at the description, they can see the link, click on it, and get your book. And it's called Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. And I, I, it's a lot of fun to read. You read a lot of history books, and it's rather dry, but you put a human angle onto this. And I got to say, one of the funniest stories is that listening to what some people shoved into their pockets or were taking off the vessel, you would think they'd go grab for their jewelry or something like that. You had people taking the oranges because it was a treat and a rarity. They were actually, instead of thinking about a life vest or anything else, let's shove my pockets full of oranges. I thought that was hysterical. I thought that was very telling, too. So many ingredients and foods we take for granted these days, and I thought that was a good reminder to us of how blessed we are. Oh, that is true. Yeah, that is true. 
you know, if you think about it, orange marmalade didn't start until a sea captain brought home these sour oranges from Seville to his wife. And she's like, what do I do with this thing? She came up with the, a recipe for orange marmalade out of the sour Spanish Seville oranges. There's, there's so much history and so much more to tell about in your book, and I enjoyed reading it. Veronica, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking with you both. Hey, it's my pleasure. And if you come we up with another book, you know, make sure, <laughs> yeah, make sure that, that uh, you get back on if you, for the next book you come out with. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, do you mind if I leave readers with a word about where they can find the book? Uh, yes, go ahead. Well, I was asked to, to share this, and I, I have been trying to put this out there as much as I can, that the book is available online at Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, and Amazon, and it's in bookstores everywhere now. Well, good luck. Congratulations. I've got my copy now. <laughs> well, Veronica, you have a blessed I'm so day. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Okay, you too. Thank you very much. Veronica Hinkie, check out her Bye-bye. book. Last night on the Titanic, uh, we got with us a new victim up in the bullpen. So we want to welcome aboard a former Watergate prosecuting attorney and turned author, uh, David Dorson. Good afternoon, David. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Now, I actually am one of those old enough to remember the Watergate hearings. (laughs) That's that's good to talk to someone. <laughs> Someone on the other age, uh, other side of 1964. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but you've got a new book out called Moses B. Trump, a contemporary novel. And unfortunately, AJ mailed it out to me last week, and I checked my mail today. It still has not come in the mail. And I hate interviewing authors without having read their book and knowing their material. Uh-huh. So I have to apologize. So I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head. And as what I could find online, notes and videos and stuff. Uh, but it's an interesting book. And i got to say, why did you choose to put Moses up against Trump? Well, it's a, it's a long story. But uh, I'd written two nonfiction books about judges, Judge Henry Friendly. And then my dear friend Nino Scalia, Antonin Scalia, wrote a book about him. And I was looking for something um, more entertaining for the public, and I came up with the idea of a novel about Donald Trump. And I must say the title Moses versus Trump came to me one day, and uh, I also must confess that the Moses in the book is not the biblical Moses. Uh, It's about a lawsuit uh, against Donald Trump for libel, which sounds familiar. It's uh, a case in which he uh, tweeted, again familiar, that a lawyer was a crook and allegedly fixed a case uh, by bribing a juror. And the lawyer's name is Ira Moses. So uh, there's something of a little sleight of hand there for which I apologize. But the book is is entertaining. It's on one level, it's a realistic story about a couple of uh, lawsuits, including the major one, which is Moses v. Trump. But it's uh, also an entertaining insight into how judges, some judges, I should say, think, operate, and how courtrooms operate. And uh, I created some funny characters like a um, 
a physicist named Figaro Newton, whose uh, mother was Italian, who wanted the name of Figaro. His father was a descendant of Isaac Newton, hence Figaro Newton. And given your background, you probably would recognize Fig Newton, which is what his name was called. Yep. And there are entertaining characters like that throughout the book. And uh, I decided to portray a realistic scene, a realistic story, but in the guise of a somewhat burlesque or fun uh, context, that's the book. Well, you know, funny, because you were giving the description of your character, Ira Moses, and you were saying, you know, an attorney, that Trump tweeted out saying, you know, he's a crooked attorney. Gee, the first thing that came to mind for me was Michael Avenatti. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the point is, actually, Ira Moses... Well, Avenatti has a lot of problems. I don't think you get everything about him in one book. But Ira Moses is, is a decent sort, uh, elderly in his 80s, and uh, just trying to get along as a lawyer. And he decided to sue Donald Trump. And Donald Trump uh, had faced this uh, very serious lawsuit. And the book tells how Donald Trump, in my view, would have handled it, facing up to being a defendant, being sued by a, essentially a nobody, being judged by one of 500 and some odd federal district judges in a federal court. And what would Donald Trump do? And that's what the book is about and how the story unfolds. And there's twists and turns. People who like law and order will find it entertaining. People who like Scott Turow, uh, who's a, a great author of courtroom dramas, would uh, also find it uh, elements there, but it's it's my own book with my own humor and my own crazy uh, twist on it. Well, I'm looking forward to actually reading it because, like I said, I could only go by your previous interviews and some of the reviews that were written. So I have to apologize not not being able to get into the weeds like I normally like to do, like I did with my last guest. Um, so well, once well, I get actually, book, I was I should also mention on. that I was a I'm sorry. No, I was wine and food editor of the Washingtonian magazine, so I sympathize with and empathize with you and your prior guests in your, in your prior interview. Oh, thank you. Um, she has a great book, and I actually did mock several recipes in her book to try because I'm I, not someone that eats out a lot, and I don't buy a lot of store-bought foods. Uh, everything I do, I, I normally do from scratch, so that's why I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm not a foodie, but I just love to have fun. Um, but uh, some of the interviews you were talking about, uh, I heard you because you were one of the Watergate prosecutors, and you had mentioned in some of the interviews uh, the Mueller investigation may blow open wider than Watergate. Um, we're waiting for the report to be released, and, of course, it's going to be redacted. Uh, what's your opinion on this, this, what's going on now? Well, I was, first of all, very troubled by William Barr's giving his conclusions, and then when he was asked about it in the House and Senate hearings, he said, well, I'm not going to talk about my conclusions until the, re uh, the report is released. Well, he, he gave his opinion when Robert Mueller wouldn't that uh, Trump was um, – you know, not implicated or even exonerated. So I didn't like that. Uh, I thought that Mueller uh, tried to do a great job, and he, he obviously has the qualifications. And one of the things I'm looking for is whether there are leads to other possible 
defendants or subjects of investigation because Robert uh, Mueller investigated whether there was obstruction of justice. Well, um, and, did, and presumably found insufficient evidence to warrant prosecution of Donald Trump, assuming he could be prosecuted. Well, he may have demonstrated that there was plenty of evidence of obstruction of justice, but not enough to implicate the president. So one way he could have written the report is to say, well, here's the evidence of obstruction, and here's what uh, its connection with Donald Trump is. Well, if he did the former, he may have produced considerable evidence that Donald Jr. or Jared uh, Kushner obstructed justice. And that's one of the main things I'll be looking for, because they have serious problems, not only in connection with some of the things that were the subject of Robert Mueller's report, but also in New York State, where uh, the Trump organization played fast and loose with a lot of rules. And, uh, you know, it's pretty well documented that they had, like, two sets of books, one when they were trying to look good and one when they were trying to pay taxes. And I'm really curious to what comes out on that. I, I was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York for five years and prosecuted income tax cases and fraud. Uh, incidentally, I should mention that I was assistant chief counsel of the Senate Watergate Committee, which played a very, very important role in the middle of the Watergate investigation. Well, yeah, having grown up, as you can tell from my dialect, I am a native New Yorker. Um, but I also know about rules of evidence because I was also a New York City police officer. And one of the first oh, things they taught us is that, yes, had a Brooklyn. Um, and one of the things they taught us is that if you falsify evidence, when you apply for a warrant, it is called fruit of the poisonous tree. Therefore, the warrant will be null and void, and anything you obtain from that warrant and from that evidence will be completely discarded, dismissed, thrown out. Now, Correct. we know that this all centered around a falsified FISA warrant. The evidence from the Steele report was falsified, used as bona fide to obtain this FISA warrant. So my question has been, I've had judges and other attorneys on the show, is, why isn't we? Why haven't we gone all the way back to the prosecution of Flynn, uh, prosecution of Manafort, saying everything was based upon this FISA warrant? Get the charges, get the convictions overturned and dismissed. Why hasn't anyone done that yet? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that there were. Uh, first of all, I don't think everything was derived from the FISA warrant. I think there was other material. Second of all, for the for the warrants and search warrants, say, of Michael Cohn's office, there was a lot more than the FISA warrant. There were all sorts of things that uh, incriminated uh, Michael Cohn. So I, I, think that the, I think it's an oversimplification to say that everything flows from the FISA warrant. It's true that it was, uh, it was imp important. It's true that the uh, Steele dossier played a role. But I think there's a lot more, and by the time Mueller's investigation got going, they used the FISA warrant uh, to get some leads, but they had substantial evidence, so much so that uh, Manafort pleaded guilty, uh, Michael Cohn pleaded guilty, and many other people pleaded guilty, and they have good attorneys. So I, I think that... It's, it, there's much, much more than the FISA warrant and much, much more than the Steele dossier. 
Well, now, William Barr said he's going to be investigating how that Pfizer warrant was obtained. And this is, this is where my libertarian tilt would come in. It's like you've got these judges that you have no idea who's appointing them. You don't know who they are. They sit behind a closed court. You don't even know what evidence is being presented. They're issuing these warrants, which you have absolutely no legal ramification for. I, isn't this FISA court actually unconstitutional? Well, it's been tested and it's been found constitutional. Uh, again, I, I was—I uh, know I knew one of the uh, judges who served on the FISA court, and uh, you know they're, they're there an extraordinarily competent and conscientious group of people, and uh, you know areas where there's national security, people have to be given certain leeways, but they want the investigation supervised by a group of, of judges. So um, they do that behind closed doors. And for one thing, I am not sure what basis, if any, William Barr or the, or the executive branch of the government would have to investigate the judicial branch. So I'm, I'm not sure that that's just bl- blowing smoke for Trump's base that, he's gonna, that uh, Barr is going to do that. I have yet to see what his plan is for investigating the FISA warrant. I, I really do. David. Well, um, yes, the I'm gentleman, go ahead. This is my co-host, the, Curtis. <laughs> Great. The, the, the gentleman that you mentioned um, pleading guilty, um, were they pleading guilty to collusion or were they ple- being, um, pleading guilty to process crimes? Um, well, if you call income tax evasion and bank fraud process crimes, which I don't say we're pleading guilty to substantive crimes as well as process crimes, I, I think your suggestion that there was no plea to collusion is correct, and therefore the point can be made that uh, to the extent that the FISA warrant suggested that there was collusion, uh, it hasn't been established yet. But keep in mind, we haven't seen the Mueller report. Again, the, it, what the report may have emphasized is that the evidence did not uh, incriminate Donald Trump, even though there was evidence. And there certainly was a lot of evidence of Russian collusion, which I don't think anybody denies. Russia, I'm sorry, Russian spying, Russian interference, and that, and also the fact that the Trump administration campaign never. Uh, reported it or did anything and seemed to benefit a lot from it. So uh, there's some ambiguity there, but it is, you know, it's, I don't, I I personally have enough confidence in the system that I believe it was done properly, but, uh, and I also have hesitancy about investigating whistleblowers or others. I think it it tends to discourage uh, or create an atmosphere where people cannot or unwilling to come forward with evidence of wrongdoing if they feel that they're going to be investigated. So, you know, it's a complicated matter, which I treat with some uh, caution. (coughs) Now, Barr in his testimony, and you watched both sides of the camps, you know, the Republicans and, and the Democrats glom onto this. And I don't think William Barr is someone who carelessly uses words, especially when he's testifying before Congress. I think he's someone that, like you, measures his words before he speaks. Yes. And when asked 
asked about something, he answered, yes, I believe there was spying. He used the word spying instead of surveillance. And I, I think he was trying to draw a very fine line about what may be considered legal and what may cross over the border into criminal. Um, and you watched the Democrats just go, their heads just exploded. Uh, but I, I looked at that and I'm saying he's not someone to use a word carelessly. Well, I I agree he's not one to use the word carelessly. I think surveillance would have been a better term. I think uh, even there's illegal surveillance, and I think he could say there's evidence of illegal surveillance. Spying tends to be prominently used in connection with one government's action on another government. You spy on the Russians. You don't spy on possible uh, uh, criminal members of Congress or members of the cabinet or anything else. So I, I personally feel that William Barr went over the top, however carefully he used his terms. I think it's, uh, it's a pejorative word. It's a word with a technical meaning in my view. And I, don't, for one, do not understand why he would use it, however improper or illegal the surveillance turned out to be. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if he was alluding to something a little bit Hello? Looks like she dropped out. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I think she was going to a place that um, perhaps he he knows something, but he's not really saying what it is. Well, that's possible, but again, I think that's inappropriate given the fact that he refused to discuss the bases for his statements, you know, he came out in the uh, March 24 later letter and said uh, there was no. I, I find the defendant innocent or exonerated of um, obstruction of justice, but there, but there was evidence of obstruction of justice because I'm not exonerating him. So at that point, he should not have said that, or if he said it, he should have been prepared to explain it promptly. Once he, you know, it's perfectly reasonable. For someone like him, and I think appropriate, not to take a public position until the report is available. But having taken a public position, which I thought was unnecessary and unwise, he should not then hide to say, well, I'm not going to say anything else. And the same thing if he says, I have evidence of something more than surveillance, uh, he shouldn't hint that and then say, I'm not going to explain. So, um, you know, I'm not saying I have no idea what the evidence is. No, it may justify the word spying, although I have trouble understanding that in a case where the F presumably or possibly the FBI believes this probable cause to conduct an investigation, which is a very low standard, and conducts it and uh, doesn't find anything. Uh, to call that spying is, in my view, uh, inappropriate and lowered my opinion of William Barr, who has a pretty good reputation in Washington. Well, I apologize. I'm back. I got kicked off for some reason. <laughs> but I'm That's back. All right. um, what I was starting to say when I got cut off was I think he may have been alluding to something that came up in the testimony about the Russians uh, hacking into the Democratic and the Republican Party's computers and databases. I'm wondering if he used that word to make that allusion without openly saying this is what we're also looking at. 
Well, that would make sense to me to, say, to use it in that sense. But I think most people listening, including myself, felt that what Barr was saying was accusing the FBI of doing something with respect to the Trump campaign, not the Russians. If the, if the Russians hacked into the Democratic or Republican parties, in a sense, it was spying. But again, it was, it was sort of industrial spying. It was not against the government, but against the campaign, which in my mind is, is different. But I uh, don't know that the, I, have, I have not seen any evidence that the Republican, that the Russians were investigating or spying on or hacking Republicans. It seems to me that all their effort was in favor of Donald Trump and against the Democrats, although I might be wrong on that. Well, we do have a caller in on the line. She happens to be a friend of the show, uh, Sweet Sue from New Mexico. Sue, you're on the air with uh, David Dorson, the author of Moses v. Trump. Uh, you have a question or comment for our guest? Well, yes, uh, especially about the term spying. The definition, if you look it up on the Internet, this is a definition for spying, is work for a government or other organization by secretly collecting information about enemies or competitors. And if you look at the direct question that Barr was asked, the word spying, according to this definition, is correct, and it is not one government against another government. And I think people get too hung up on a certain word that there's a lot more that goes into this. And then I, I maybe heard you wrong, but you said something about the Trump organization uh, didn't report anything. Well, Donald Trump did. He said that he was being spied on. At that point, he did not know who was doing it, but you can bet with the money and everything he has, I imagine he had the Trump Towers and different things sweat for bugs. It, even when he was in the White House, he went down to Mar-a-Lago for over a week, and they went throughout the White House. So he had an idea something was going on. That well, was like, can I, if I can answer some of what you're saying? First of all, there's sure. never been established that the Russians tapped into any of the phones of the Trump administration or, or computers of the Trump administration. I also have a different take on your on the definition of spying. It says competitor or adversary, and by that I would have taken it to be a different organization entirely, not one branch of the government against another or one American citizen on, on another. Uh, at least not, not or a law enforcement, put it differently, a law enforcement Organization, American Law Enforcement Agency, and a citizen of the United States. It has a, people like me, and I think others feel that spying involves a, a sort of an enemy of the country. You don't, they say, you don't spy on England, you don't spy on France, you don't spy on Israel. That doesn't mean you don't keep an eye out for them. So I think by using the word spying, Bill William Barr. Uh, you know, gave a word, presented a word that was not necessary, that was ambiguous, confusing, and uh, favored uh, the, the position of Donald Trump and his base. So 
Uh, you know, I think you can argue about it, but I, I, I'm not convinced that it was the right word. Oh, okay. I, I, we do have a difference in opinion of that. Right. Now, when Donald Trump, well, he didn't say it was Russian or anything. He just knew that there was something going on. I imagine he found bugs and other things like that. And at that time, this was going on with the dossier, the CIA, the FBI, and everything. They had already set up this surveillance. One of the questions that Barr was uh, given was, you know, had wasn't it the FBI, you know, shouldn't they have informed Donald Trump when they knew that something was going on, and part of this was, you know, Russian, although what they started the surveillance on Donald Trump was, uh, you know, not right, what they did, that, you know, at that point, they should have informed Donald Trump that something was going on with the Russians. And then I'll, this is my last point, and then I'll get off. But, you know, I think anyone who tries to overturn a legitimate election is an enemy of our country. But you know, anyway, so I think the, very I think knowledgeable right. the Russians, and the Russians were you. outrageous. The Russians really did something that was terrible. I really don't understand how Trump could be friendly with the country that you described was trying to overthrow our election. So that, that bothers oh, me. No, too. no, 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 no. no I just, it so wasn't. Let me say one other thing. You, you, I gave okay. you your chance. I don't believe okay. that Donald Trump personally found anything of wiretapping and the like. I, I'm not sure he would know <laughs> a wiretap if he saw one. There has never been a reliable report that anybody from the United States bugged Donald Trump or his uh, campaign. And I, I've yet to see that, and I just don't, I don't believe it. And his claim that Obama was behind it, to me, is, uh, is, is disturbing as to Trump's, Donald Trump's judgment and ability to understand the character of a former president of the United States. So, so I, I disagree with oh. some, of, but not all, of what you said. Thank you. Yeah. That's the same. And you know what I've got to say this is Donald Trump, when he was asked about what Barr said, he said he was not going to comment on it at all. Uh, well, he did I comment. He said he, he said he exonerates me. How could he, how could he say that? Uh, he, he said from, that and what Barr said, but after that, he was the last press conference he had, when Barr had already said there was spying and things like that, he said, I am not going to get into that. That is the Department of Justice. Donald Trump well, has because, never said that it no was, said excuse that, me, ma'am. I'm speaking. I'm speaking, and then I'll let you. He never said that Obama was the one who did this. Oh, he did. He did say it a long time ago. Please, ma'am, you have to be accurate with the facts. Well, Trump accused Obama of spying. Of of, uh, of spying on him. Now, with respect to Trump, what he what he was asked about WikiLeaks, which he had spoken about at huge length, uh, asking WikiLeaks and the Russians to bug the Democratic campaign. He says, "Well, I'm not. I don't know anything about WikiLeaks. Don't leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it." But that's for his interest. He wants to separate himself as much as possible from WikiLeaks because WikiLeaks helped his campaign enormously, and we don't know why. If that's part of William Barr 
Barr's investigation, I'm all for it. For all I know, the Trump people did something to help WikiLeaks or promised Assange something. So that part of of the investigation, whether the Trump organization was in cahoots with Assange and WikiLeaks, is something that I think the public has a right to know. Well, I do, too, and I'm going to – Go, I'm going to go back on uh, mute because we're really not getting anywhere. But I do think in the end it is going to be interesting when everything comes out, including the FISA and how all of this started. That's where the country needs to go now. So I, I, that I agree it with never you completely on that. Well, I think the more information we have, the better off we are. And I, I, I just hope that uh, William Barr sees fit to release you know, virtually all of the Mueller report if he cannot release all of it. I should mention one thing about my, can I mention one thing about my um, novel, uh, you know, Moses v. Trump, which is available on Amazon and other online uh, sources, that one of the people who endorsed my book was a former policeman from New York City, Frank Serpico. So, uh, uh, don't the even book. get me started on Frank Serpico because he was the dirtiest cop in the 90 precinct. That was the precinct I worked in. I got the dirt on Frank Serpico. I worked with cops. <laughs> really? Because he, he's a good friend of mine, and, I, and he, I worked with him on, uh, as, a, as an assistant U.S. attorney, and I found everything he said to be reliable. So that's very, very interesting what you say because it never turned up in any of the analyses of Frank Serpico, who is celebrated in New York, at least, where you're from, as as the person most responsible for the NAP Commission and other efforts to clean up the police department. And uh, in my my book, he's a hero. Uh, uh, He was shot in the line of duty by cops, uh, cops helping or not coming to his rescue. And uh, I just I'm so proud that he's a member, one of the people, along with uh, John Dean and the president of Harvard University, who uh, who gave me squibs uh, to use on the back of my book. Uh, Derek Bach, who was the former president of Harvard and dean of Harvard Law School, praised my book Moses v. Trump, and uh, I, I couldn't be prouder of the people who uh, praised it. Well, I, I got to tell you a true story because I still have my memo book from that day. First foot post out of the police academy in the 90 precinct, the building I was placed in front of to stand was the building that Serpico was shot in. When I'm telling you, I worked in that command with the men and women that were there when he was there. Uh, we got the inside dirt. Uh, the IAB hid a lot of stuff back there. But within two or three hours of me being on that first foot post, I had my first arrest that first day in front of that building on Driggs Avenue. I am. Very familiar with the area. <laughs> but, David, well, it has I, been so much fun having you on. It's been a very, very lively conversation. Oh, and I'm I, right. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy speaking to your guests and you. <laughs> it has been a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to reading the book when AJ finally gets it to me in the mail. And like I said, once I read it, we'll have you back on because this is a fun conversation. It's great to exchange ideas and be civil about it. I agree. Thank you very much for having me. Take take care. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. David uh, Dorsey, and you can find his book up on Amazon.com. There is a link on the show page. Just click on Moses v. Trump, and you can get his book. Let's welcome aboard a dear friend of the show. Always so fun to always have him. He is a brain that excels. Makes me look like a little peanut here. Welcome back, Dan Perkins. Good afternoon, Dan. How's that intro? Uh 
That's no pressure on me at all, is there? <laughs> I'm and fine, and thank you for having me on. Been too long. Oh man, we we oh, it, I didn't think it's been that long, really. Oh my goodness, you know, I gotta admit, I am now entering uh into going into my tenth year doing this, and you know, wow. I've had so many guests. I actually the other day took all the contacts that I have shoved into my phone book and actually put them on the computer. I haven't figured out how to print everything out the way I want yet, but I'm looking at it. I'm looking at all these people. I'm going, oh, my God, how, what a long road it's been, and it's amazing. I know I've got over 800 episodes. I'm nearing 1,000, and I've only cut it down to one day a minute, a year, one day a, year, one day a week. Boy, you've got mm-hmm. your mustard, Dan. So much that is going on, and I don't even know where to start. You had sent me a little communication about this woman, this Chinese woman that was uh, caught over at Mar-a-Lago. And the more we hear about it, the more the details are getting more and more bizarre. What is going yes. on here? Well, that's a great question. Um, we have this woman who came to Mar-a-Lago with with multiple cell phones and flash memory sticks and other devices that she was trying to get into Mar-a-Lago. Um, from what I gather, she was discovered through the scanning devices. Um, but I'm not sure any what, what she was trying to accomplish other than to see if she could get in. You know, Sometimes there are people like fence jumpers at the White House. It's more important to see if they can get over the fence as opposed to say, okay, wait a minute, I'm over the fence. Now what am I going to do? Uh, they haven't thought the process all the way through. And I suspect that this woman fits in that category. She had all this stuff, and she was trying to see if she could get in, and maybe she got part of the way in. But once she was there, she didn't know what she was going to do. And I think that was her downfall because typically these type of people don't have a well-thought-out plan. They have an initial action step, but then – if they get through it, they they uh, they don't know what to do. And I don't think she was necessarily a threat. But you know, is, is she in the same category as the fence jumpers? I mean, how many times over the last two years did we have people who actually jumped over the the fence guarding the White House, and some got relatively close to the to the to the house itself before they were captured? But you kind of wonder, wow, how is it that they got over the fence? How, how did how did somebody jump over the fence at the White House and and get as far as they got before somebody tackled them? So you kind of ask the question about the security. And what's interesting about that question, both security in Mar-a-Lago and security in the White House, I wrote a piece uh, maybe a month and a half ago wondering whether or not the deep state – was uh, purposely ignoring their responsibility under federal law to protect the president and his family, the so vice president and his families and cabinet officers, because there's a federal statute that says even an individual who even threatens, does not to carry it out, threatens the life or bodily harm to the president, vice president, or their families is a felony subject to a $250,000 fine and up to five years in prison. Now, if we look at all of the people who have publicly 
threatened to attack the president, Robert De Niro. He wants to punch him in the face. Were, were there any consequences to him? He continued to say it. And when when Peter Fonda said he thought that Baron Trump should be ripped from his mother's arms and thrown in a cage with two pedophiles, um, again, no ramifications. So where where is the concern for the safety of the president and his family uh, by the people who are responsible for protecting him? And I wrote that piece, uh, as I said, probably six, eight weeks ago. I still am very concerned. We had the, the governor of Puerto Rico last week say if he ever saw the president, he would punch him in the face. The man should have been put in jail. And I think that the problem, Annie, is that what's happened here is that because when Donald Trump took office and the left believed him to be illegitimate, the left believed the rhetoric from Podesta and from Hillary that the Russians actually interfered. So because they believed literally – remember that, that the Women's March the day after the inauguration where they had a half a million women in Washington, D.C., and one uh, how, how, prominent – How can I inter- forget that? I was in the middle of that. I was in the middle of that trying to get out of D.C. We had gone to the inauguration, right. and we were just behind the Capitol. We were just blocks behind the Capitol, and we, <laughs> my girlfriend grabbed me because she knew I was going to say something wrong. She goes, you're going to get us into a fight. I cannot forget that day. Right. So we had Madonna standing on a platform, says she's been thinking a lot about blowing up the White House. Where was the FBI and the Secret Service to whisk her away? Not there. So if in the very first day of his presidency he was verbally attacked and threatened and the deep state didn't do anything about it and the people were saying that he was an illegitimate president, I think that the deep state is responsible for the rhetoric of attacking the president that seems to be still out there and was out there for the better part of two years. And so uh, I, I think that there's a lot that still has to be done to uh, to secure the president, and we've got to figure out who's not doing the job. I suspect if Peter Fonda had been arrested and taken to jail and was tried under that statute, he would be convicted, and he would be in jail for five years, and he would be paying a $250,000 fine. If the government started to enforce the law, and Annie, isn't that true of about a lot of things? If the government would enforce more of the laws, maybe we'd have a more civil society. Absolutely. Now, we just had a liberal attorney on just before you came on, and that's one of the things I said. You know, it's great to exchange ideas, but to do it civilly without calling each other names. And and what we're seeing is the moment you're identified as a Trump supporter – uh, you are treated as if you know you're at, you are ignored, you are beat up, you are your vehicle is attacked. The vitriol coming on instead of having a sit down conversation like we just did. No, let's just mm-hmm. throw the insults at each other. Let's call you a racist, mm-hmm. a bigot. And there was an, uh, someone posted on their webpage just a little while ago. Um, he's an author. I forgot which which website it was that he and a Black buddy who was a 
solid Trump supporter that wears his hat and his shirt and every, everywhere, they go up to a food truck to be served, and no one would serve them for half an hour. The moment they walked away from the food truck, oh, my goodness, people were being served left and right. But if they walked near it, they were not going to be served. And this is what it's gotten down to, uh, Dan. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we have a situation where um, the, the security of the president, the vice president, the Maxine Waters of the world who were telling people to harass the cabinet members at the gas station, restaurants, or whatever, put them in harm's way. Um, that is clearly a, a, a situation where those people have ignored the federal law designed to protect elected officials, and they don't care. It, and so what I'm saying is that it empowers and emboldens people to do things that under an enforcement provision they wouldn't do. But they got away with it, and nobody challenged them, and they continued to get away with it for two years, and nobody challenged them. Nobody arrested them. Everybody called them to task. In fact, they were praised. Um, Robert De Niro got a standing ovation. He got a standing ovation because he's talking about assaulting the president of the United States. There's something fundamentally wrong there. And, um, and so as long as that continues, we're going to have uh, instability, and we're going to have more and more people who are going to try and jump the fence at the White House or, or bust into a federal building or get into Mar-a-Lago. And whether they're Chinese, Japanese, Italian-American, Jews, or black, doesn't really make any difference. It's understanding what's driving them and motivating them is the most important thing. Well, just to let you know, in the last hour, the story has been broken. And I swear, Dan, I've got some of the best listeners. They're right on top of everything. They've been posting the links up in the chat room here. And just at the White House, a guy pulls up in a motor scooter to the front, he sets himself on fire and also had a suspicious right. package. Secret Service was all over it. He's on his way to the hospital, non-life-threatening injuries, but a suspicious package, and this guy tries to emoliate himself in front of the White House. So here's mm-hmm. another perfect example of you know the attacks that are being done. And, and, the, and the issue really – Yeah, and, and, but the real issue is that it doesn't appear that – there are any consequences for people's actions. And that's not only true about the president. Um, we, we, look at, we look at the, at the demeanor of the, the Democrats when they took over the House and there was no money for the wall. And how, how long, how long did the Democrats cry? There was no problem at the wall. It was all made up. But yesterday, the New York Times came out and said there's a serious problem of safety and security at the southern border. So now what do the Democrats do? Their, their major newspaper says there's a problem. How do they admit that they, what they've been saying? It's kind of like, gee, Trump colluded for two years. That was their mantra and their story. And then when it was proven not to be true – what did they do? They had to they had to eat crow, although they didn't eat crow. So they made this. Then the border became the issue, and now it appears that the the bastions of uh, intellectual insight, the New York Times and the Washington Post and others, are beginning to say, 
yeah, we got a serious problem at the border. So now what do the Democrats do? Well, interesting, interesting story that broke today about noon, about 1230. There's a story in today's Washington Post about the trial balloon that was sent out apparently by the White House that they're going to take the people that are coming across the border illegally, and they're going to put them in sanctuary cities as opposed to putting in other places where people are supporting uh, border security and the people who are in sanctuary cities want open borders. They're going to, they're going to start dumping the people that are, they have to release. They're going to release them in sanctuary cities. Now, that was a, apparently a trial balloon that came out that was reported in the Washington Post. At 12.30 of this afternoon, Donald Trump said, no, I think I want to look at that. I want to see about the possibility of taking the, ex, the people who have come across the border illegally, ask for asylum, and have to, be, uh, have to go through a court date. We're going to, instead of just turning them loose to go everywhere where they want to go, I like the idea of putting them in the sanctuary cities. By 1.30, 1.30, the mayor of Oakland, who was, quote, supporting sanctuary cities, not in my town. <laughs> not in Oakland. Oh, man. So they, they that, understand that the, the reality of what's me. going on at the border. And if, if, if the government starts Sorry. dumping the people into California and New York and New Jersey – and Illinois and the other sanctuary cities and dumps them in there, uh, they're going to come face-to-face again with a position that they're not going to win. And so that you're going to see people um, – if, if they – and so the Trump, President Trump said he's rethinking that, and I think he should. And I think this is another – it reminds me of, of Mitch McConnell when he decided – he was going to have a floor vote on the preliminary memorandum of the new Green Deal. And when mm-hmm. it came time to vote, not one senator, not one, voted in favor of the new Green Deal. And all the Democrats voted present. So they've now put themselves in a position that was, a, 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 in my opinion, a beautiful uh, position that, that uh, McConnell put them in. Now the president's put the Democrats in another bind. If they if they don't want them in the sanctuary city, why? What is it that they don't want? And she, the mayor of Oakland, basically said, "We don't have the resources." Well, what's what Trump's been trying to say? The country doesn't have the resources. No, it doesn't. And the funny part is, is I was reading some interesting articles, and I don't know if you get this magazine, AMAC. it's it's the rival to uh, AARP, AARP uh, right. but it's mm-hmm. a conservative. Yeah, but this this is the conservative answer to it. And they had an interesting article about what's happening with the Democratic Party, how left it's gone, how it is now pandering to the elitists, and it's come up with these ideas that are socialism and communism, no good things, no longer capitalism. They've lost touch with the blue collar worker. And what's telling is the shift in voting. And you look at liberal bastions 
such as Johnstown, uh, Pennsylvania, or Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, uh, Youngstown in Pennsylvania, areas such as this, where in 2007 went more than 50%. Uh, Scranton, uh, Wilkes was 57%. Youngstown was 59 voting for Obama. Clinton runs uh, in 2016. It drops to 43 and 45%, a 14-point drop in one of the bastions of the Democratic Party. And it goes mm-hmm. on to show overall nationwide, nationwide average in that short time, a 5% overall nationwide drop. And if you follow that up with an article, I think it was Lloyd Marcus, he's going to be on at the end of the show, uh, wrote about the last Trump rally he went to. Over one-third of the people that showed up at the Trump rally, rally were registered Democrats. They had previously voted Democrat. They don't like the way the Democratic Party is going, and they're showing up the Trump rallies. That's very telling. Yeah, and it, and but it's it's we we who study this shouldn't be surprised because we know that in the 2016 campaign, when you look at the the rallies that Donald Trump got and the the, the participants and the overflow crowds and the tens of thousands of people who wanted to come and see him. Um, he had struck an accord. And I think that all this stuff, understand that all this stuff that the left is talking about, the new Green Deal and 70% taxes, all those things, um, mainstream Democrats do not want. So uh, I, I've been asking this question for the last three weeks. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you this question. So are you ready? Okay. I'm ready to start. Listen carefully to what I say, okay? There are currently 18 candidates running for the Democratic nomination, and there are Mm -hmm. possibility of seven more who could possibly enter the fray. So we could have 25 candidates for the Democratic nomination for president. So the question is, which one of those 18 or 25 will volunteer to be the Walter Mondale against Donald Trump? <laughs> For those of you audience who Honestly, don't remember, Walter Mondale lost 49 to 1. Who's going to stand up and say, because if, if, you're, if you're correct, and I think you are, that the vast majority of the American people are not interested in socialism or communism. They're not interested in giving up the tax breaks. They're not interested in giving up the tax on their assets and all these things that are going on that the left is talking about, free Medicare for everybody, uh, free college, um, and the New Green Deal is going to cost $30 trillion minimum. Uh, The Democratic left is not paying any attention because – they don't believe that the rank and file is smart enough to understand, and so the elites have to do that for them. But the problem is that the rank and file with people that are vote. And I think that based on what Mr. Trump has been able to do, we had um, jobless claims numbers yesterday, the lowest level in 50 years. We had 190-some thousand new jobs created in the month of, uh, of March, which was reported last Friday. So I, 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 there are too many things that are going on, 
and they're not paying any attention because we are basically deplorables. And they have to make the decisions for us. And we have the right to vote, at least yeah, for now that, we do. That's the, yeah, that's what it is. We have to worship at their altar of government. No longer mm-hmm. do we go to a church to worship or to a god. The god becomes the democratic government. And hello, mm-hmm. folks, this is a republic. It's supposed to be based upon a republic, but we're seeing it destroyed because of these policies. And I think the rest of the American people are waking up. Now, you wrote an mm-hmm. interesting article that showed up in the Reactionary Times recently concerning the black college students. And yes. Again, I'm going to cite my friend Lloyd Marcus. Uh, he and Wild Bill Finley were batting some ideas around, and he says, the best place to have a tea party is to go onto a college campus because they're too stupid. They're too dumb to catch what is going on around them. I, I think students are starting to be woken up. Am I right or wrong here? I, you know, when I wrote that story, uh, there were a lot of people who read it who said it'll never get published. Nobody will publish that story in this time. And I said, well, I'm going to see what happened. And not only did they publish it, uh, there was reaction within minutes of it hitting the wire. There were reactions with people uh, talking about what was in the article. So I, I look at it and I and I say, um, again, it's a difference, Annie, between the far left and the rest of the country. When a reporter went to Columbia University to interview college students about what was going on in segregated dorms, Everybody seemed to be happy with it. Everybody thought it made a lot of sense. And the blacks were saying the reason why they wanted the the segregated dorms were primarily two reasons, safety and comfort. Safety and comfort. And when you look at it and you say, well, wait a minute, I don't understand what you're saying. Safety and comfort. I just we feel more comfortable with being with ourselves, and um, and safer. When he went outside the college campus and went to Harlem and told him what was going on, the black people in the neighborhood were saying, "That's insane! What did we fight and die for under the Civil Rights Movement? Not for separate but equal, but for inclusive." And we're, we've got black people saying they want separate but equal the 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 court decided in brown versus board of education that separate but equal was not legal was not constitutional yet we have black people black students who are saying to the leadership of colleges we want to be segregated Now, what's important to understand about that article is that about the ratio of white liberal men and women professors at colleges and universities is about 12 to 1 to conservatives. And about 3%, if you add men and women together, uh, about 6% of the total hierarchy of educations of institution are blacks. The rest are predominantly white males and white females. So we've got the leaders of the colleges and universities, which represents about 
white people, about 72%, seem to be supportive of the idea of encouraging black people to go back to segregation. Now, if you lived in a segregated environment in your, in your higher education time, by the way, we used to call them four-year colleges. No, they're not four-year colleges. It's now taking, on average, six years to complete college, six to complete college. So when, when they finally get out, if they've lived under the segregation for six years, aren't they going to want segregation when they get out of, into the real world? Probably, but they're not going to see it. So now are they, are they equipped emotionally and psychologically to deal with the fact that society is not segregated, at least not at the moment, and now they've got to start over again and learn why they shouldn't be segregated. So there's just crazy things going on. I, I thought probably the greatest example that I could bring to your attention of the ineptness of the leadership of the Democratic Party was on Wednesday of this week. Maxine Waters, who's chair of the Financial Services Committee for the, for the House, brought in, I think it was six or seven heads of major money setter banks. And she did this whole diatribe about student loans and how it's costing so much money and it's more than credit card debt and children are graduating college with an enormous amount of debt. And she turns to all the panel and says to them, so what are you going to do about it? And every one of them said, Madam Chairman, we got out of the student loan business in 2000 and 2009 to 2010 when President Obama and the federal government took it away from us. I, I love that. Chairman. I saw that, and this I had to replay it. Of the, I had to replay it. You what? I'm I sorry. had to replay that. I, I was watching it when that happened. I hit the button on the DVR and played it several more times going, oh, my God. This is the gift that keeps on giving. When you have someone right. that's stupid, with, yes. without even knowing what's going on. How would you, how would you, how would you have your presence uh, uh, as chairman of a financial service committee in the Congress and want to issue the deal with the issue of student loans, which have been a big issue, free and forgive the loans and free, free college for everybody, and the chairman of the Financial Services Committee didn't know that the federal government took over in 2010, nine years ago. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a, a bad day for Mad Max, uh, and it showed her ignorance and her stupidity <laughs> about the issue that she was trying to make hay with, and she basically didn't make hay. She made something else. Um, but that's, that's what we're dealing with, and, and we've got – We've got people that are still continuing to believe that Donald Trump was in collusion. You know, and I, I look at this and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mueller said there was no confusion, con- um, coercion with the, with the Russians to do anything to influence the campaign. And obstruction of justice. What's interesting about this from a writer's standpoint, Annie, is that they use the term obstruction of justice, but nobody talks about what is the charge that they're using as a basis to say that Mr. Trump obstructed justice. 
And when you press and you dig around and you search, you find that there were, the Democrats believe that it was obstruction of justice for President Trump to fire the Attorney General of the United States, or excuse me, the um, uh, Director of the FBI. And the federal statutes say that the president can terminate any cabinet officer, any position, without cause, whether he wants to or not. So the idea, and the idea was, again, the obstruction of justice, is that by the firing of James Comey, he interfered with or obstructed the investigation into whether or not there was Russia collusion. And James Comey said to the president, you are not a uh, person of interest. Rod Rosenstein, a Democrat appointed by Barack Obama, wrote the termination letter for James Comey, the recommendation to Donald Trump. And it was agreed to with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So there was bipartisan support for the dismissal of James Comey. How could there be obstruction of justice? And so then the other thing that was important to me this week was our new attorney general. I absolutely thought he was magnificent in his testimony. And when he was asked a question, like Leahy said to him, have you shared this with the White House? No. Have you shared any of the contents with the president? No. Lee had nothing to say because there was nothing for him to say afterward, after, after um, he, uh, Barr answered the question. Then we had the senator who said when he raised the issue of spying, surely you don't mean spying. And, yeah, I believe that there was spying. I don't have the evidence at the moment, but I believe there was spying. So it really was a very interesting week uh, for the Republicans, not a really good week for Democrats. Yes, as I mentioned, the previous guest happened to have been a former assistant chief Watergate committee prosecutor, David Dorsey. And we asked him specifically about that word spying. And my comment was is that uh, William Barr is someone who does not use words carelessly. He's someone who thinks out what he's going to say, and he says it. He's very deliberate on what he's saying. The fact he used that word and not surveillance, I, I believe, is very, very telling. But Dan, yeah, um, I I don't know if that's our I don't know if that was our next guest in the uh, in the uh, if it is our next guest, ask them to please press one on their keypad so I'll know it's them calling in. Uh, I'm waiting for the next guest to call in. Uh, it's so much fun always to talking uh, with you, and you know, you've got great websites. You're still doing songs and stories for soldiers. Um, yes, how ma'am. is that going? Extremely well. In fact, we're doing our first uh, golf outing on the 19th of May here on Sanibel. And we're doing two things that are, are really different. Instead of selling a whole sponsorship, uh, you know, for Joe's Pizza or whatever, we're giving people the ability to create a memorial sign for a veteran. And the Tees and Greens will be dedicated in the memory of, of veterans. And then at the end of the tournament, all those names will be gathered up and go on to the virtual memorial wall on the Songs and Stories for Soldiers website. And then at the end of the tournament, Five people will have each will have one shot at a hole in one to win a million dollars. So there's five million dollars in play. Wow, 
Wow. I mean, I had done some of the work with the Independence Fund when they were coming through here. Now they are up at the Citadel, so I don't get to work with them anymore. And, you know, at one point I sponsored a hole on one of the golf outings they did. And these are Mm -hmm. fantastic people to work with these veterans. And the stories you Mm -hmm. get from the veterans, the situations that they find themselves in. And believe it or not, the top golfer happened to be a master sergeant (laughs) that won the tournament. He was blind. Believe it or not, this guy was legally blind, and all he did was he had a buddy that walked with him, and he says, all right, you've got Mm -hmm. so many feet, Uh, this is how, and he would walk up to the hole and back to feel the course, and he Mm -hmm. was shooting unbelievable. They said, we've got guys that have their entire health. They golf every weekend, and this one master sergeant was golfing better than all of them. And when you work and talk with these men and women, Hearing the stories and their will to persevere, the will to get mm-hmm. over whatever their disability or handicap is, it's amazing. It is. I, I, we're in the process right now of negotiating with the Florida Department of Veterans Affairs. They have seven nursing homes throughout the state of Florida that are specifically dedicated to veterans with dementia and Alzheimer's. That's all they're for. There's over a thousand veterans in those facilities, and we did a pilot program with one of them last year with songs and stories, and they absolutely love it. So we're talking about trying to get, and that's what the money that we would raise from the golf tournaments. And you don't have to go and play; you can go to Songs and Stories for Soldiers US and do a sponsorship of a of a sign, put a put a, a veteran's name and dedicate it to them, and and fill out the form on the on the site. And, that they will be remembered. You know, there's a there's an old saying, a person's name written down and spoken will never be forgotten. So the memorial wall was much like the, the wall in Vietnam uh, for the Vietnam Memorial. The memorial wall is going to be a place where people can send in names and sponsor holes, tees and greens, and remember that veteran friend of theirs, husband, son, daughter, and so you don't have to come and play, but you you can you can make a memorial gift, and it's it's a hundred dollars for a sign, and you can do that by going to Songs and Stories for Soldiers US. Man, you do fantastic work. Right now, you have me almost in complete tears uh, because mm-hmm. when I was working with the Independence Fund, they had these little streamers they put up with a veteran service uh, veteran's name on it, and at one point, I had my dad's name put on there. He served in World War II, and he got out mm-hmm. of the sergeant. Uh, and we got to remember the stories. We got to remember what these men and women have gone through and are going through. We can't forget them. And what you do is so. And I'm, I'm starting to break up in tears, honestly. <laughs> it is. It's. It's. I, I was at a dinner party last night, and people were talking, asking me about songs and stories. And they said, "How do you? How do you do it? How do you?" How do you get to you, – you obviously you spend a lot of time. We're at 100, over 120, and if we get these seven hospitals, seven nursing homes, it'll be 127. We'll be at 130, maybe 140 by the end of this year. How do you deal with all of the stories that you're hearing? And I said, I was a veteran. I am a veteran. I shouldn't say was. I'm still alive, knock on wood. Um, and there's a kinship that's there almost immediately, no matter where I go, whether it's men or women, anywhere in the country, black or white, doesn't make any difference. And um, the, 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 the biggest challenge, which is not 
not medical. The biggest challenge is loneliness. And um, I just go and sit and talk with them. And uh, uh, I've, you see a metamorphosis any like I've never seen in my life when people have somebody to talk to, especially if they're in a hospital. Um, I never forget the first time I went to the, the veterans. And I'm, if I'm running over, you can cut me off anytime. Um, the first time I went to the veterans hospital in um, Cincinnati, the Vine Street Hospital, and I went in and I specifically wanted to go to the kidney dialysis and the chemotherapy floors because those are the most grueling protocols. And I went into the kidney dialysis floor and uh, I met the head nurse and she said, I'm, I'm shocked. And I said, okay, I'll ask the question, why? She says, because I've been on this floor 13 years. You're the first visitor that ever came. Wow. And I said to her, wow. anytime, I'm back in, anytime I'm back in Cincinnati, I will come and see you. And she said, okay. And about four months later, I was in Cincinnati, and I said to the person, I have to go to the VA hospital. And I went in, and she was there, and she said to me, you came back. I said, I told you I would. She said, I didn't think you would. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very small okay. things. We had our next caller in on the line, and we lost him. Uh, my co-host lost oh. him. Uh, we'll try and get him back. <laughs> we had the next guest in on the line, and we lost him, Dan. But yeah, the work you do, you and your wife do, and how many people you touch and help is absolutely phenomenal. Dan, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. It looks like Curtis is trying to get him back again. Okay. Uh, All right. Thank you, dear. Anyway, we'll, we'll work this out, Dan. Thank you, and God All right, bless thank you. Uh, there's a link you to your care. website. All right. Thank you. Care, I appreciate Dan. it. Take care. All right. Dan. All right. I'm sorry about the confusion, uh, but it looks like we have our next guest in on the line, Tony Griffith, a, a, a phenomenal comedian, uh, now an author. I want to welcome to the show Anthony Griffith. Good afternoon, Anthony. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. I mean, to hear you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It is my pleasure. You know, and I got to admit, you know, when I read a book that someone's written and I sit down in one sitting and read it from cover to cover, that's a good book. And you had this, you had a a gentleman follow you around, taking stories, uh, making notes and everything. And you had no idea he was going to come up with this, did you? Exactly. You're exactly right. He um he traveled. I mean, he didn't travel with me, but he he followed with me uh, uh, to the uh, to the comedy clubs um, to my my church. He went to church with me, uh, and he's he's uh, he's uh, is um, he's a, a Jew. So for Easter, he bought a suit. And he had service with with me, and it was fun, and it was great. We had a good, great time, and I had no idea what he was going, to, what he was writing, because um, he had the tape recorder at all times, and he would just ask me questions out of the blue. Yeah, so it was fun. So I was I was just as interested in what was going to go into the book than you were. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what. When I was reading it, I was laughing and I was crying. And what an amazing life that you and your wife have put together. And I made a comment to my husband. Uh, there was something that was going on. There was a survey that one of these polls had done about how couples to, and how they're disappointed in their sex life and their relationships. But when you read a story like yours and your wife's, uh, Bridget, uh, it's an amazing story. And you're everything that's right about a good relationship, how you work together, how you, you feed off of each other. And today's society, it's too disposable. No one's willing to work anymore. But what the two of you have put in and have created is amazing. Well, I, I thank you. Um, I, w- I would say I can't take credit. I think it was God who definitely, uh, it was my, my mom uh, and my belief uh, in marriage uh, that there will be tough times. Um, I had no idea the tough times would be losing a child and um, having a disability. But um, hey, she she's a keep a keeper. I think I'll keep her for thirty more years. What do you think? <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> I think so. And in the book, you you talk about the tough times you've had. Uh, And here you are, you're climbing up your your ladder. For some reason, you know, you come up from a family where everyone goes in and becomes, works for the post office or does some other civil service job. Yes, yes. You just float along. Uh, But you had a dream. And I had a crack up uh, because my mom had a straitjacket, honestly. Honestly, yeah. true. It was one of those <laughs> But the reason why is she worked in a hospital, and it was shoved oh, okay. in the attic. And we used to wear this thing for Halloween. And yes, we figured out how to get out of it. They're always yes. getting out of a But you tell the story, and I had to crack up because it brought back so many funny memories. You wanted to be a magician, and your mom actually went out, got you the straitjacket. But instead of a magician's jacket, she she got you a real one. Yes, because she didn't know where to go, so she called in the same asylum uh, and said, hey, my son wants to be a magician. How much does a straitjacket cost? And and the own uh, the uh, worker said this has to be true because only a mom would call uh, an insane asylum for their for the child. And yeah, she was, uh, you know, she was a credit because my mom she didn't she never said I can't do this. She never um, put that that obstacle in front. She just said. Maybe I don't know how to you will do it, but I'm 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 going to be with you, and no matter what. So even when uh, lip syncing was big when we were kids, uh, if I was Michael Jackson, she was the Jackson Five. If I was James Brown, she was the backup <laughs> band. Yes. So it it was she was great. It was great to be up under her. Yes. Uh, that's what we all need, loving moms. But you also tell the story of your broken home. You had a father that was abusive, uh, and then she ended up divorcing him and finding someone else. But 
your stepfather never really was supportive like your mom was. And I, I, right. I grew up in a family of two parents that were always there supporting me. And it, that broke my heart when I could see the distance between you and your stepfather. Yes, it was. It was. Um, uh, I learned very early that he loved my mom, but uh, my brother and I was just a package. And I love him because he loved my mom, but uh, we really didn't shoot the breeze. He never taught me how to play um, um, catch or fly fly a kite or any of that stuff. Yeah, he was just there to provide and 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 I had to learn that quick. So I'm always looking for I think as I look back, um I was always looking for a father figure as I was growing up and becoming a teenager and stuff like that because um yeah, I didn't have really a father figure. Yeah. Well, you know, you grew up in an interesting time, and I'm I'm a few years older than you. Uh, you're closer to yeah. my baby sister's age, so I, I understood a lot of what you were saying and writing about in the book. Or your, uh, please, I forgot the name of the actual uh, gentleman who wrote this. Uh, Mark uh, Carroll, um, M A R K, uh, last name Carroll, C A R O. Mm-hmm. I apologize. I mean, I have all my notes here, and actually I've got about seven typed pages from your book. Um, <laughs> so a lot of this <laughs> Well, I, I love interviewing an author when I read their material. It drives me crazy if I get someone on and I don't get the book in time and I'm not able to, to know what I'm talking about uh, with some intellect. Yes. Uh, but as I was saying, we we grew up in a similar time where they were starting to desegregate the schools. They were starting the busing. Neighborhoods were now being desegregated. Uh, they had the new yes. real estate laws and regulations that came in that said you could not de- deny selling it based upon race. Uh, so I grew yes. up through all that and understood where you were coming from. Uh, but coming from the opposite end, I remember in my elementary school, and seeing a black kid in the hallway was an extreme novelty. There were three of them, and they were yes. brothers. And when yes. we moved to the new town we lived in, um, it was a lot more segregation. And you were almost 50-50 at that point. And to me, being dropped into this culture and learning new things uh, is partly probably what made me what it is today. And I think that's the same what I, yes. I said in your book, too, being dropped into a totally different culture, acclimating to the new norm, is what has made America so great. Yes, yes, it, it's it's uh, definitely, we were, um, at first we were in the projects, which were all uh, African-American, but then, because my mom saw, she wanted a bigger part of the pie, and that pie and um, was what you would call just acclimating to uh, America. I think it's the uh, on the bill. There's a saying from many one, and and therefore uh, it was able to see uh, an interesting culture because, like you said, um, the hair was different, and uh, they did things differently, and, and you know. Um, to um, 
to eat uh, those little hot dogs were totally different to me, and, and it was just a form. It was something different and unusual, but it was so many different uh, ethnic groups where I was at. It was the African Americans, the blacks, the 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 whites, the Mexicans, and there's a little part of Chicago that is just a melting pot of Jews and Hebrew and um, Muslims and uh, Catholics. And that one part, if you ever get a chance to go to Chicago, is Hyde Park. And that's where um, a lot of things happen because you can see that we can all get along in that little town, that neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, uh, about 1984, I and a bunch of yes. other people from our office was flown by American Airlines into Chicago for lunch. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to Chicago. Uh, since then, I've only flown through it, but never really stayed. Uh, but beautiful city. Uh, but yes, what is going on? It's it, it's heart rendering. And your book, Behind the Laughter, is such a poignant book because people don't realize that as you're up there, you're performing. What else is going on in your life? You know, you see the superficial person on TV, but who is the person behind there? And this is what you yes. address in your book because here, as I started to say before, you were climbing up. You finally made it to Johnny Carson. Your world yes. was coming from everything you ever wanted it to be. And and what what I would do um, when my daughter was in the hospital, I would do the Tonight Show, uh, which is at four, five o'clock, and then I would rush to the hospital in the children's world, wing to be with, to watch the show on TV with my family, my daughter and um, my wife. Yeah. Tony, uh, it's an amazing Tony. story, and you're still doing uh, comedy now. And you're you are oh, yeah. with a bunch of other comedians as the clean comedian, as a Christian conservative clean comedian. And I I think that's amazing because this is what we need. We need to take the the filth out of there, the stuff that turns people against each other, and have some just good yes. fun once again. This is something Johnny Carson was famous for. And exactly. That's what that's what he said. Hey, it's not politics. I'm going to make fun of everybody, and that's why everybody could watch TV back then. Uh, even the kids, if they didn't understand the jokes, they the thing was you saw mom and dad and, and your grandparents laughing, so that was just a wholesome family feeling, yeah. And and somewhere we've we've lost that. Mm-hmm. Tony, absolutely. My my co-host Curtis, go ahead, Curtis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who was your influence? And you know, who was your favorite comedian? And and did you ever get to meet him or her as you were coming up the ladder? You know. Um, because uh, you know, believe it or not, I wanted to be. Uh, my favorite was a group called Monty Pythons. They were just silly. Oh yes. And yes, oh, yeah. so that, that was my crew. Uh, um, 
I couldn't, I, I, I loved Richard Pryor, but I couldn't cuss. I couldn't cuss. Uh, so, so I liked him. I liked just silly stuff, just goofy. I really loved uh, Lucy. I loved um, Carol Carol that just stuff that was just, just stupid. Yeah. What about, yeah. What about Bill Cosby? Uh, Cosby, believe it or not, he was he was not he was never funny to me. Maybe he was too scientific or intellectual, or maybe I thought he he reminded me too much of my my uncle. Um, but he never made me cry laughing. Uh, Jonathan Winters would make me cry. Yeah, stuff like that. But I did I did meet um, uh, the guy Dick Gregory, and I thought that that was cool because he was he was witty and he was um, funny. Yeah, so I did I did meet him. Yes, and I went to one one um, com concert when I was in college. I could afford one, and I went to see Rodney Dangerfield, and he had me crying laughing, <laughs> and I was so fortunate that when I came to Hollywood, uh, I would see I would work with him. And just to see him, because he would he would come to the clubs in Hollywood in his pajamas, and he and it was so funny his pajamas and house shoes, and he would still make you roll on the ground. So that was cool to see him, someone that I saw uh, in college, and to see him uh, and work with him in Hollywood. Yeah. What about Carol Burnett? Oh yeah, it's just fun. He mentioned Carol. Say it again. Yes. You mentioned Carol. I love to. Yeah. One of one of the comedians I loved, and this is dating me now, would be Pat Paulson. If you remember, every once in a while, Pat Paulson would put himself up as Pat Paulson for president. I saw him. Yes, I remember that. Yes. Yes. I do. Yeah. And. Well, we also had a group of friends in high school that we would do the Monty Python routines. You know, hello, Mrs. Yes. I would cry. I would cry because they were so stupid. I would cry. And I liked the Smothers Brothers. Because the one, oh, yeah. one that was real straight and the other one that was just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, Tommy yeah. and Dick. Tommy and Dick's brothers, the Smothers brothers. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. a matter of fact, uh, Tommy uh, Smothers had a winery, and at one point, my husband and I bought his wine. Oh God, it was the worst wine you ever wanted to drink. <laughs> <laughs> I the joke was on us. <laughs> Man, your book is so. Carlos, what was your who's your favorite comic? Oh, I like um, oh, Harry Lewis. So many. I like um, Abbott and Costello. Those, those yes. Guys. yes, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, I have so many uh, that you think of Tim Conway, especially when he does a routine on Carol Burnett. You never knew what this guy was going to do, and they said every time we rehearsed it, he did something different, so you never knew what he was going to do. Uh, yes, uh, and and it, it was so funny because, yeah, it was so funny to see that because. 
he would make them laugh, but they had to turn away not to break uh, up laughing. And and uh, here's, here's a, a side point that with uh, c- comedy teams, the uh, straight person always made more money because he had to play like uh, everything is just straight. Yeah. So he got paid more money oh, uh, than, the, than the goofy guy. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you think of the good teams like uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Um, yep. It, there's so many, so many good old comics. And trying to get some good comedy that is non-political, uh, that just everyone can sit down. Parents can sit with the kids and not worry about something being offensively said or sexually. Yeah. But even though some of these comics were able to slip in something without you realizing it, Bob Hope was famous yes. for that. You know, it slipped in. Yes. I didn't feel like he was telling you. Bob Hope, show. yeah. I got to meet um, that guy. Yeah. Phyllis Diller. Oh, did you? Phyllis Diller. Yeah, sure did. Phyllis uh I met her. She was uh, she was so charming um, and she, very wow. funny. Another lady that was extremely funny. And um, she was she was uh, much, much prettier than what she came out to look like uh when she performed. But she was oh. uh she was very regal and then um, and just a, a pleasure to be around and um yeah, yeah. And even I don't know if you all remember, um there was a young lady on what's happening. Uh sure Hemphill. Right. Yeah. And she was extremely funny. Yeah. Shirley Hemphill. Yep. Well, Anthony. I remember that name. Your book, Anthony, yeah. is, your book is Behind the Laughter. It's an excellent book. Uh, I've, I've got the Kindle copy, and uh, I guess I'm going to try to have to get your agent to give me the hard copy, uh, possibly signed by you. It's a fantastic book. Well, I would love to do that. And touching and telling story. You've got a beautiful wife. And you're still going strong no matter what. God bless you, honestly. And you've kept your faith and you've kept strong. And, you know, I wish you all the best. And I welcome you back on any time, sir. Thank you. And so uh, because I have to tell my wife when when we, I talk to you guys, will you please, because uh, she's going to go right to the uh, the website and look you up. So please. Please give me your, the full name of the show. It's very simple. It's Southern Sense, as in common sense. Just put a hyphen in the middle. Southern dash okay. dot com. Got Great. And again, okay. People can get it up on Amazon and they can download the Kindle copy. Thank you so much, Tony, and have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, Carl. Tony Griffith. All right. Uh, and let's bring on a friend of mine. I met him. I can't believe it's it's nine years ago when I had the pleasure of meeting him the first time on the Tea Party Express when he came here through Buford. Uh, he danced on the stage my husband built and said it was one of the best ones that we put out there. Welcome aboard, Lloyd Marcus. Good afternoon, Lloyd. How are you doing? 
So I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Hello, Amy, my patriot sister. How you doing? <laughs> I am doing fine. Man, I I have to apologize. I started this with the, the start of the show because I'm still running my tea party. And we were scheduled to meet That's on wonderful. the third Monday That's of each wonderful. month, which falls on – which. Yeah, 10 years. We're still kicking. And it's the 10th anniversary. I com- it completely fell out of my mind with everything that's been going on in my life. I scheduled the meeting for a week later, and then I got the email from you and your wife about doing tea party rallies across the country on the 15th. And I felt like a blooming idiot, but I've already booked my guests, and I've already notified people, and I got stuck. So, okay. Uh, believe me, everything is the way it's supposed to uh, be. Like, I'm excited about the uh, Tea Party launching again. And speaking of Tea Party Express, I don't know uh, if uh, you know about this, but they have just launched a uh, t- uh, Tea Party for Trump. So they'll be, be doing a, a Tea Party for Trump rallies across the uh, country again. And it's about time. Uh, we've got to stop this wacko. Nazi uh, resistance out there. Well, I had a question. Now, is Kay still in charge of the Tea Party Express, or is there someone else now? Because I know she took over after Amy Kramer. Uh, no, uh, Kay is still there. i got to give her a call. I've been, I've been meaning okay. to call her. She's been on my mind. Uh, she's such a sweetheart. I, I love her and her husband dearly. I mean, it's two of the uh, nicest Ron, people yeah. you ever want to run across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the two of the nicest. And like you, they're also fellow musicians. And you've had a new CD that came out, I believe, last last year, right? Uh, yes, I have a CD out called uh, God, God, uh, Country, and Love. And one of the songs I love that I feel like uh, that this song came directly from the from the Lord. And this song is called We are Americans. And what inspired me to write that song is that I got, uh, you know, uh, I became so disheartened by what Obama was doing uh, to our country and how he was uh, diminishing what it means to be uh, an American. Uh, 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 Obama had 47 million people on the welfare system, uh, disability had gone through the uh, roof, and he was opening the floodgates to all of these illegals, basically saying, hey, uh, there is nothing uh, special about being an American. Uh, there's no special, uh, special about uh, uh, learning our customs and learning our language and assimilating just just come on in and hop on our welfare uh, system, and that just and that just broke my heart uh, because I perform at naturalization uh, ceremonies for years in Maryland, and those people that came uh, uh, to those ceremonies, they worked their butts off to become American. And Obama said, hey, hey, look, just simply ignore all that and just 
come into our country. So, so I wrote that song called called "We Are Americans" because being an American is special and should be made special. Oh, absolutely. And believe it or not, I have that song queued up. So I'm closing off the so- the show with that song already queued up You're for kidding. you. How's that sound? <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Now, I I went onto your website, LloydMarcus.com, and I was, uh-huh. I was looking to get the CD. But uh, last night, the links were broken. So you may want to take a look at that so people can go to your website and get your music because uh, it's very uplifting. I mean, you've been doing this for such a long time. And like I said, I remember meeting you in the first time. It wasn't the only time, but the first time uh, back in 2010 when you were coming right. through. And, oh, man, what a rally we had. And you've been, you've been doing these rallies. And you made a comment about the last Trump rally. I do believe it was you that you were writing about it, that over a third of the people that are showing up at these Trump rallies are actually registered Democrats upset with the Democratic Party. I know. I know. Isn't that I, – uh, yes, I think it's neat that you, uh, that you brought that up. Yes, yes, uh, 34% of the people who attended the last uh, – Trump rally are blacks, Hispanics, and millennials. Uh, so all of this stuff in the uh, media that Trump is a hardcore uh, racist and hates uh, uh, everybody, finally some people are starting to get beyond that nonsense. And that is such a despicable, evil lie, uh, you know, because what that does, uh, that just just uh, causes hate across Across uh, a country, it is ridiculous that seniors are getting beat up for wearing a mega cap. Come on, you know that's just nuts. Oh, absolutely! And there was an article that John Miller, who writes for um, what's it? He writes he writes for CRTV. He's White House correspondent for that. He's also worked for Fox, The Blaze, and Mercury Radio and Arts. He uh-huh. I mentioned this story earlier in one of the. Um, other uh, <laughs> segments. And um, what I found interesting is that he had a friend of his, and they went up to this food truck for lunch, and his friend is a dyed-in-the-wool porter. He's got all the regalia on. The people at the food truck refused to serve him. Now, what, what is wrong with you? That, you know, hey, That's crazy. What does it matter what someone's politics are that you're going to deny them service? And we see this happening all in, every single time. We had the kids uh, in the abortion march in D.C. being attacked. The Covington kids. And you see mm-hmm. people having the hats snatched off their heads, getting beat up, simply because they say, I support our president. If, if someone something... did that to an Obama supporter. Oh, my goodness. You're imagine right. if yeah. someone did that to an Obama supporter. Well, well, you know, and uh, something that is so obnoxious and despicable about uh, that whole thing uh, is that I have been in the Tea Party movement for 10 years. I have attended 500 Tea Party rallies. Never have I seen anyone act violent or mean or anything like that, and yet the mainstream media uh, did a very successful job Painting uh, the uh, Tea Party movement as a bunch of redneck racists against a black uh, president, and they painted uh, uh, the uh, Tea Party at 
uh, as a bunch of violent people, and we're not violent. They're the ones that are violent. Uh, Black Lives Matter, that that horrible uh, bunch of uh, pe- uh, people called Antifa. I mean, uh, these are violent people, uh, uh, and yet the mainstream media portrays us as the uh, violent people. Uh, it's, it's a stigmatism that we've been having a very slow uphill battle on, and I don't know what the answer is. How do you prove that we are honest Americans that just want to get along with everyone else? We want a government to function the way the Constitution intended it to function. We want everyone to enjoy their freedoms without depending on someone else. You know, we want to live our lives, and that's the problem with being a conservative Tea Party person. You want everyone to go along and, and just live your life. Hey, listen, let's not you know, get into a huge fight over something if we disagree. There's always a way to debate this civilly, but right. we're not getting that anymore. The only uh, answer uh, they have, because they know that we have the right end of the stick, is to call us names and attack us. I know, and uh, uh, that 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 is correct, and I am so sick of that because as soon as you call someone a racist, then they immediately shut up and back off and say, "Oh no, like I'm not a, a racist. Take my home, take my car. Like I want to show you that I'm not a racist." I don't know. <laughs> that is such a despicable uh, thing to uh, do, and uh, we need to stop uh, falling for it. Speaking. Of, uh, of which this is why I love, 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 love Donald Trump because all of those silly uh, tricks that they have played on Republicans for decades, none of them has worked on Donald Trump. Uh, he still stays on offense and he still con- uh, confronts political correctness all the time, and I love that about him, and I hope that the rest of the Republicans can finally learn from Trump. Yeah, you know, if they attack you, then find a way to counterpunch. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love this latest thing. It's about white privilege. You've got people falling over themselves to apologize for white privilege. Well, number one, I didn't ask color or gender to be born. I'm sorry. The good Lord decided that for me. Thank you. And as I grew up, I grew up in a family that both of my parents had to work. So tell me where white privilege is there because we were latchkey kids. Tell me where my my white privilege was when I applied for job after job and said, no, we've got this affirmative action. We're only hiring blacks and Hispanics. I said, affirmative action? Well, I'm a female. Nope, nope, you have to be a white female. Tell me where my white (laughs) privilege was when I had to work three jobs for my college Uh education. No student loans, no grants, no scholarships. Where was that white privilege? And I'm telling you, I live paycheck to paycheck, so tell me where the white privilege is there. And I'm and not a well, uh, and something else also, I have studied the uh, biographies of a ton of people, and everybody or ninety percent of the people who are successful, uh, regardless to their skin color, they work their butts off to get where uh, where they are today. Uh, I spoke uh, uh, in uh, Montana, and this gentleman who drove me to the airport, he ran a meat packing uh, 
company, and he was a white uh, businessman, and he said for 10 years his workers made more than him. You know, so where was his white uh, privilege? You know, uh, he had blacks, uh, you know, he had blacks and he had Hispanics uh, working for, uh, 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 for him, and they were making more money than him for 10 years, you know. Uh, but this is what the Democrats do. They throw this uh, evil class envy nonsense around. I keep using the word the word despicable a lot, don't I? <laughs> but like every time I see what the Democrats and leftists are doing and fake news media is despicable. Uh, this whole uh, Mueller thing, despicable. Uh, the things that they are doing with Bill Barr demanding that he release the whole Mueller report, he cannot do that because it's against the law, but yet the mainstream media uh, will not tell the public that. They just keep painting a picture of him that he's this bad uh, flunky of Donald uh, of Donald Trump uh, who will not release the new uh, uh, the uh, full report. He cannot because it's against the law. And we have such a dumb, you know, dumb, we- dumb public now that people just don't know. No, no. And uh, it, what got me was I, I listened to the segment where Eric Holder said, when was America great? And on the last oh, show, my co-host yeah. will tell you, I went on a, on a, I went on a rant. You know, America was well, great you, when, we formed the, when we wrote the Declaration of Independence and threw off the yoke of tyranny. America was great mm-hmm. when only 10 percent of the Americans here were willing to fight for those freedoms and build the republic upon which we stand. America was great when they were doing this. They understood That's that slavery right. was going to be a huge issue, and they took mm-hmm. that into consideration and said, all right, we can't win this battle today, but we'll pick up the sword, and they did. And Amen. thus we ended up right. with Republicans that were born of the Whig Party, the Whig Party that put the first woman and the first black mm-hmm. on a presidential ticket. Elizabeth Woodhull right. and Frederick Douglass, the Whig Party that gave birth to the Republican Party a few years later. America was great when we freed the slaves and we continued with our civil rights. First mm-hmm. civil rights bill under 1866 under Republicans, repealed in 1896 by Democrats. Mm-hmm. The Americans were great when fought the world wars to, again, once free the world from tyranny. And we remain right. great because we now fight terrorism. Our men and women are willing to fight for these freedoms. And if we don't understand how great it is and the average American now stand up along with you and me and our president mm-hmm. and help defend these rights, privileges, and Republicans, then we will not become great any longer. We must maintain it because if we fall, everyone else falls behind. Everybody falls. I'm uh, sorry. Look, I ran. I, no, uh, no, no, no. Uh, that was absolutely wonderful. I could not have said said it better, but. The problem is this is no longer taught in schools. Uh, you are 100% right. Uh, 600,000 Americans died uh, fighting the Civil War to free the blacks from slavery. Uh, and something else also that is just totally, totally, blacks are only 12% of the pop- population. So that means that Barack Obama could have 
uh, could have never been elected without millions of of white uh, uh, people voting for for him. And yet, you would not believe how many black people in my family uh, who still believe that white Americans uh, never wanted Obama in the White House and they hated, uh, you know. And, and I said, but uh, but they gave this horrible president. Two terms. It doesn't matter. America is eternally racist, uh, and blacks have a horrible time. It's such a lie. America is the greatest land of opportunity on this planet for all who choose to go for it, period, end of subject. And yet uh, this myth continues. This Jesse Smollett guy, <laughs> uh, uh, he, pulls this, uh, he pulls this horrible hateful uh, uh, hoax, and and some black Democrat said uh, uh, yesterday, well, the problem is the cops were a racist. Give me a break, you know, and that's the kind of nonsense that's tearing this country apart, and we don't need it, you know. Uh, and I just wish um, uh, more Republicans had the gumption to confront this nonsense and they just don't. Uh, the only one uh, who is big and bold and bad is uh, Donald Trump. Lord, you know what I tell <laughs> well, him. Well, you know, I, I love that we. When I when when I hear this 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 um, guy trapped by the um, black community about what has you know white America ever done for blacks, I uh-huh. let them know that hey, it was whites who liberated your ancestors from slavery. I mean, think about it. Blacks couldn't vote. And, and on top of that, it's the very people you're taught to hate, the Republicans. They're the ones that liberated. That's right. So, you know, they'll, they'll sit there and tell you, oh, that's not true. You're lying. I tell them, look it up then. I know. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, uh, but how do we combat that? Like I said, uh, uh, when, when, and I go to family events. I'm uh, basically the weird uh, family member mm-hmm. who's a black uh, Republican. <laughs> you know, we, we have I to am the them. weird guy. We have to educate them, educate them about the parties and, and, and the Republicans' um, historical ties to the black community. Uh, that has been such an uphill battle. Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, our education uh, uh, is, is the problem. But like I have to tell you, I almost feel that there's a spiritual component too. I, I feel like the Democrat Party, oh, yeah. they, ha- uh, uh, you ha- uh, they have this spiritual stronghold on black folks. I thank God of this new uh, movement, uh, the uh, Blackfoot movement. Uh, they have about uh, uh, 250 thousand numbers. I thank God for them because it, it does uh, seem like that finally a bunch of the younger black folks are finally starting to wake up and smell the coffee. And that's a huge amen to that one because I was reading some statistics about you know how Democrats were voting uh, under Obama and compared to Hillary when they were uh, running and you're looking at an average of 17% drop in Democrats voting for Democrats. And as you wrote about, really? you know, the numbers that are now flocking over to the Trump rally, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. 
Uh, and I think people are starting to wake up and smell the coffee because when they saw the violence of Black Lives Matter, when they saw the violence of Antifa, when they saw the violence of Occupy Wall Street, wait mm-hmm. a minute, this is not the America that we grew up in. This is this is this is wrong. Violence against another right. person is wrong. And I right. think that was the pivotal turning point between Obama's presidency and a potential for Hillary. And I think when people realized that, that was what was on the line, and that's when people started to turn with the change of heart. Well, uh, well, uh, uh, I have been the chairman of the conservative campaign committee for the for the last seven or eight years. So I uh, campaigned against. Obama, uh, and I remember the night I got, I was uh, out in Michigan in a hotel room, and, and and when Obama won, our whole team was devastated, and little did I know that uh, uh, that that Obama winning that second term was really the setup for. Uh, Donald Trump, because after Obama's second term, America has finally had enough of Obama's anti-America policies. And I knew something was up with uh, uh, Donald Trump. I was living in Florida at the time, uh, and Donald Trump was having a rally in the Daytona Beach, and one of the Co-coordinators, uh, uh, they gave me a call, and they said, "Lord, uh, uh, we have VIP passes uh, for you." And he said, "The rally three, but the doors open at nine a.m." And I thought, nine a.m. I'm not gonna go." <laughs> uh, so, so I got to the rally around. Uh, Two o'clock. Uh, state cops had dropped. Uh, 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 state cops had blocked off several roads. There was like five thousand people outside. The hall was packed. Uh, and I went to the security guard. I said, "I have a VIP pass. Sorry, sir, we are packed. You cannot." Get in, and what I noticed was the diversity of that crowd. I saw black bikers uh, covered in tattoos. I saw white, well-dressed seniors, and everything in between hanging out at that rally, uh, just uh, just to see Donald Trump as his limo uh, pulled up. I mean. It was amazing. I had never seen anything like it, and I have been in politics for a long time. Uh, uh, I have attended Sarah Palin rallies, uh, Ted Cruz rallies. This was like nothing I had, had uh, I uh, ever seen, I and so there. I just knew that you know that there was something different and special about this man. Yeah, there were lines for like well, you know, five Curtis blocks and- long. Curtis, oh, were, were, yeah. uh, Curtis and Lloyd. Did, did y'all attend them too? Something yeah, I, I attended Daytona. Um, yeah, Daytona Beach. Uh, well, we're down to our, our last four minutes, guys. So. <laughs> <laughs> and neither did I. I. <laughs> well, Lloyd, thank hey, you for hey, all the hard work. Hey, but like, look, I am Lloyd Marcus. It doesn't matter. 
Yeah. It doesn't matter. So, Lloyd, we are I don't care who you are. <laughs> You're not getting in. <laughs> well, Lloyd, we're closing off the, the show with your song, We Are Americans, by Lloyd Marcus at lloydmarcus.com. God bless you for the hard work you do, Lloyd. And I'll be talking Thank to you, you much. soon. Thank you, Great.